right, sweet. <clears throat> should we have some? Should we get you some triumphant sports music? Should it be like a pop up? I was honestly, I was. It's it's weird because I was thinking either that or like an emer- emergency broadcast this bulletin, is... being like, "Gentlemen, gentlemen, I thank you for coming like... uh, to this emergency broadcast meeting. Uh, I know it's been uh, eight hours since this news has been announced, but it does uh, feel I think like we're doing like... coming post haste. It does. What is that? <laughs> yeah, there, yeah, there we go. There we go. I think, I think we have to keep talking over it so the bots don't pull it, right? Isn't that how that works, Kyle? <laughs> That's not how it works. Exactly. Matter of fact, the minute Tom played it, the fucking internet gods just took a shit all over our fucking ad reels. So. Okay, okay, okay. This does really, oh, I mean, to be honest, um, this is kind of our podcast version of, like, the NBA draft. <laughs> like, this I'm so is, excited yeah. to see who got drafted this year. That's that's true. I got to be honest. I it was funny because last you night I was catching up with my dad, <laughs> and I was talking to him about the film registry because he was talking about the what he watched that BG's documentary yes. on Netflix. Ooh, no, it's on HBO. Saturday night. Yes. Oh, it's HBO. I'm sorry. Thank no, you. it's very and, good. And he was yeah, and he was power. talking about Saturday Night Fever, and I just happened to look. Yeah, no, fuck me. Yeah, sorry, corporate sponsors. <laughs> um, and I was talking about Saturday Night Fever, and I happened to check and saw that it was in both the recording registry and yes, the film registry yes. and my brain went off and i felt like you would know this is that the only movie that is both in the recording and the film registry? no no um uh i don't know is them star all wars but star wars, that, star wars definitely is i don't know all okay, of them but cool. star wars definitely is um and who knows maybe there's one in this class because this is the one thing let's set this up for people i don't know do you want to s- explain what this is because it's showing up in people's feeds on a day that we don't normally have episodes kyle do you want to explain it do you want me to explain it what do you want to do that's true. I mean, basically, I mean, if you've been following us up to this point, um, you know, every year since 1989, the National <laughs> Film Registry has selected 25 films. Uh, and this is our, uh, I mean, look, man, you've, you explained it past. This is our NBA draft it day. Is. So we woke up this morning. I had no expectations, no timeline. Like, they don't tease this thing. You know, at least with Fortnite, they're like, hey, <laughs> Venom's coming out tomorrow. Film Registry is just like, fuck you. You'll know. You'll know when we're ready. And so you just wake up that morning and you're like, oh, mm-hmm. shit, they did what and just hope to god that you can uh, find a way to stay blind so uh, so we anyway, have the, this yeah. is the 20 the 2020 class was announced this morning i was up early i saw on twitter that it had been announced or you know what let me rephrase that i actually started out my morning truly wondering when the hell are they going to announce it so i googled yeah. national film registry to see like oh do we have a timeline as to when it's gonna happen and it was apparently uh two hours earlier so I texted both of you guys immediately. I was like, oh shit, it's up. It's up. Uh, and I was kind of like, I, I, our, our, what we decided to do when we knew we were doing this, um, because we're doing a podcast about the National Film Registry, we decided we would do an emergency episode when the new class was inducted. Um, which, you know, right now, as of this, you guys are, you people listening, are about halfway through season one. Um, this new induction class would be season 32 of the show. <laughs> so it's not like we'll be talking about these films in depth anytime soon. So in about 15 years, you will still be hearing us finally yammering on about the picture here today. Yeah. And we will both yeah. be, uh, still be childless losers living at home. So, um, <laughs> um, some but, things never change cinema uh, and our personal list. So the rules for today is so everybody knows Tom and I, have not 
looked at the list, which has been killing me because every year I have checked the list like first thing. And yet there were due to the nature of Mike accidentally Googling it at, at the exact time it dropped and just, you know, social media having to drop some tidbit every time in a headline. Some did get spoiled. Some for have us. been spoiled, but we have not. Yeah. But Kyle has read the entire list. And what's going to happen now in this little emergency episode is Kyle is going to take us through the films one by one. And Tom and I are going to respond to them. Uh, if we know them, if we don't, uh, we're going to give kind of our real time reactions to hearing the 2020 National Film Registry uh, class. Um, Kyle, do you have anything else you want so, to say to set it up up top? Yeah, just a few uh, few couple questions mm-hmm. before we get started, because you did mention uh, some of these films have been spoiled for you guys, and I've been just as excited to talk to you about them. Uh, so to kind of set my expectations, too, since I have been sitting on this list, uh, I gotta ask, what movies do you know about going into this? So I don't wanna, that way I have a sense. Of, I don't want to say the. What to I, I don't want to say the titles. Five. Yeah, I don't want to say the titles. Let's just say the number of ones that have been spoiled for us. Is that fair, Kyle? That that's way. all you want to do. All just right, that's, that way, that's fair. I'm because okay. maybe our listeners haven't heard them at all, and I want to. You know, I want to. I don't want to say what I've had spoiled for me if it hasn't been spoiled for Tom and then it's ruined for him, you know? What if what if in this case this is a circumstance where I say, hey, you guys at home, uh, if you haven't seen this list, uh, pause this, uh, look at the list, uh, see if you know them. Okay. Uh, and if you don't, then come but back here because we don't know them either. There's still some that Tom might not know that I know or that Tom knows that I don't know. So I can tell you that I have had... Four. That's fair. Okay, that's, that's fair. I forgot. I forgot that there are other people in yes. the rooms. So I will say that I have had uh, five films spoiled for me in total. Five. Four. Four because in headlines, this always happens every year when the registry puts their new class. The headlines for Variety or whatever will always include like two or three of the biggest titles. You know, the biggest, right. most populous films. Um, to try and draw people in. So I have seen what I would say, not knowing the rest of the class, just based on the fact that they were in the headline, I have seen the the most recent, probably the most recent films, the big films uh, for four of them. And then one of them got spoiled for me because the director of this film tweeted about it. So I did see them talk about Oh, I have this film in the registry now, and it's not their first. Uh, so I was very excited about that. Um, and that's all I'll say about that for now. Uh, Tom, what about you? Um, I saw three, um, three? from okay. headlines, and um, cool. one of them was the one that was uh, spoiled by not spoiled but brought up uh, with by Kenny and Phil when we recorded earlier today that's right cuz you we should let the listeners know cuz this this is coming out i think tomorrow <laughs> a, a day after we recorded we should let the listeners know you have an upcoming episode of podcast like it's 1999 yeah i recorded uh, an episode about universal soldier the return you know future national film registry ent- entrant um <laughs> and they wanted to know um uh, what I felt about a certain movie being put in, and luckily I'd already heard that movie was in, and just um, my feelings about uh, how movies are 
what movies deserve to be in, if there's like a criteria we think we feel there is and all that. And I basically said, no, I think it's kind of a fluid thing. Everything is based, you know, every movie's different and it's all, if there's one overlying thing, it's really just about painting the history of cinema with these picks. And, um, but otherwise, yeah, that was earlier today. And one of those movies, which is uh, a choice is (laughs) in the registry. Now, Kyle, let me ask you before we go through these, of the films, yeah. there are 25 films in this class, right? Yeah. And specifically 25 films, right? Because sometimes they do a thing where they're like, uh, Reverend so-and-so's uh, films of the South. And it's like 50. Yes. But it's all it's 25 films, right? Do they have Saddam it's Hussein's a... execution video? <laughs> they, they they do not. No, unfortunately. Good pairing with the uh, Sapruta film. <laughs> So that, it's, it's yeah that did, 20, that did not get enough fan suggestions it, I think. Well, I know what I'm doing next year. It's 25 yeah, films, right, Kyle? It is. Okay. Yeah, I would say the only reason I'm like only hesitant is one. Well, you'll okay. see. One has like some interesting histories, and I yeah. We'll okay. See. Anyway, okay. We'll I'm see. not going to ask it, but how many of the 25? How many have you personally seen? Uh, from what I can gather, uh, four. Okay. Okay. Interesting. I'm wondering. I'm I'm guessing it's probably the the four that I've seen in the headlines, but we'll find out. Um, Which is funny because based on what you guys just said, the five that you know, what the three that Tom know, I made a little prediction list here, so I'll be curious to see how many of these match up. Because you said based on headlines, and I'm like, okay, okay. and then I'm like, mm, maybe you like heard something or director. So I made my own little list. I'll be curious to see how many of these you guys knew. And, I didn't. And, yeah, uh, I didn't think of that. I should have. You should have tried to. I, it's too late now. You should try to predict how many we've actually seen of these. What weird tastes? Oh, using. yeah, that that. <laughs> Eh, next year there's always next year next time guys next year so are we ready to get into this and here and now you're going to be reading them in what order kyle so i figured given uh all the headlines and everything and just kind of going through history i figured it just made sense to kind of do it chronological order uh from when they were released so so um, oldest to newest couple of films Yeah. yeah i will i will warn you these first couple of films uh i will be incredibly surprised if either of you have seen them uh and if mike you have seen them then that also would not surprise me either so <laughs> okay okay so um anyway but uh so you're gonna be our... giving us just to start you're gonna be giving us just like the year and the title and we're gonna see if we know it from that right yeah, so I have so what I have here is just the year, the title. Uh, I don't have who directed it or anything like that, but I do have the synopses um, that the National okay. Film Registry did give for each of them. So what we normally do in our yeah. episodes, um, I haven't. That's the one thing I know all of the films. I have not read the uh, summaries for okay. the film, so this will be the first time that I'm reading. I these, may. So, uh, you... If I butcher names, please forgive me and correct me because I, I will not. I will not feel embarrassed because I assume I will f- butcher some I, of these. I may ask some questions, so you might may wind up having to do some real time research, but we'll we'll see how it goes. No, honestly, that's fine. We'll see. We'll see how loosey goosey right. we want this to go. But I'm I'm ready. I'm I'm yeah. I'm good to go. Are y'all ready? I'm ready to go. Yes. Folks. Yes. Let's do this. All right. Starting off, 2020, number one film registry summary. We have from 1913 is Suspense. Nine, I'm sorry, 1913, you said Suspense? Suspense. Yeah. Okay, hang on, hang on, hang on. 
I want to. Do you want to look? At, yeah, I, if you both want to look this up and get something. Oh no, no, in front I'm not you, looking anything up right now. I'm going to try and get it from memory first. I'm going to ask you a couple questions. I'm going to see if I know this before I look anything up. Okay. Okay. All right. Let me know when you guys are so ready, and I will. Well, I'm going to ask you a couple questions first. I want to. I want to. I want to. Oh, I want to okay. play this game. Here's my question. Right. So, Tom, have you? Do you? Do you know this film right off the bat? No. Oh, I see. Okay. I don't. I think maybe I do, but I have a number of thoughts. One. My first impulse when I hear that is is Hitchcock because hit, but that's only because Hitchcock had so many of those one word titles, you know, Notorious, Spellbound, all that crap. But 1913 is too early for Hitchcock because mm-hmm. this is pre the Lodger. So I'm going to ask you this, Kyle. First things first. I first question I'm going to ask you for probably most of these. Is this a documentary or an, a fiction film? Uh, I believe it's fiction okay. from what I remember looking it's too up. Early. Uh, yes. Yes, it it's is. It's too early to be a feature. Um, suspense. And you don't have who directed it, right? I I do, actually. I just looked it up because you warned me I was going to might have What's to do real-time research. So uh, It's Lois Weber. Lois. Oh, 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 yes, yes. I know this. I know this one. Yes, yes. Okay. I'm almost certain I was one. Okay. Um this one is um it's uh it's uh it uses split screen, right? That was its big thing. It's a it's a it's like a ten minute short, fifteen minute short, something like that. Yeah. Yes? Yes. 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 Yes, you are on the money. Okay. Yes, yes, from yes. The, from the from from the quick little summary that I'm given here when you do a quick search, mm-hmm. uh, a man steals a car and races home mm-hmm. to save his wife from a dangerous vagrant who has broken into their remote home with police in pursuit. Yes, this, this kind of fucking rules. So I have seen this, and the reason I've seen this is, um, do you guys remember? Maybe Tom remembers um, how Kino Lorber did that collection that was the uh, the pioneers of African American cinema that they put on Netflix for a while. Yeah. Yeah, they did one called Pioneers Women of Cinema, like the early women filmmakers. Yeah. And so I watched a bunch of those. And this one, okay, so it's... it's What the fuck was the name? I, you just said it, Kyle. Uh, what is her name? Suspense. No, the, the director. Oh, Lois, oh, Lois Weber. Lois Weber. She, I think, is one of the earliest yeah. American women filmmakers. Because Alice Guy Correct. Blanche is not American. She's one of the earliest. And what was so cool about this one, and Tom, I think you would really love it. The only thing I remember from it is so like Kyle says it's a you say it's a vagrant I just know somebody I remember somebody breaking into the house yes yes I guess that's enough to be a vagrant so So somebody breaking into the house and um it's this is 1913 there's one point where it's um you see a husband the husband like on the phone and he's uh the frame for him is a triangle on the center of the screen and then the wife appears in the upper right corner and the the criminal the the burglar appears in the upper left corner and it's like a split screen showing all three people at the same time in different places it was really cool um suspense yeah okay cool okay yes i i know that one tom have you do you have any familiarity with this one no this is a first uh first time hearing about it uh for me that it i i it's called suspense it's called suspense. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. I thought you. I thought when you said suspense, that was like, the, like the genre. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I thought we were like trying to guess. I thought we were like trying to oh. guess what the movie oh, was. Oh God! Insert suspense here. No. Um, okay. 
Okay, it it rules. Uh, it might still be on Netflix. Um, or it's probably on YouTube. It's nineteen thirteen. It's public domain. Um, it is on YouTube. Okay. Yep. So I the first yeah. If you look up if you look up suspense nineteen thirteen, it is the first result. There are three different options. You could pick either one of them or either three of now, them. Now I will uh, say this: it it's an old silent film. It's distinctly possible that this thing is not as uh, good as I remember it because you know when you watch these old silent films and Tom Jones is like, you kind of only remember like when something sticks out is like, Oh, that was better than I expected. And you maybe don't remember all the, all the weird stuff that happens in it. So maybe it's not, and maybe it's not as good as I remember, but, but I remember the split screen. It reminds me of a movie that I, I might have watched it in one of my college classes. Cause the use of the split screen looks a little bit familiar just based on, uh, screenshots I've seen. It also sort of gives me a vibe that it would be one of the films you would see during like one of the default pre-shows at Alamo. Yes, yeah. You know what I mean? It, it fucking, yeah. Wow. Okay. I'm really happy about that. I got nervous when you said 1913. Um, cause the title is pretty generic. So I wasn't like, yeah. um, again, I was thinking like Hitchcock, the lodger or something like that, but no, the split screen. Yes. I remember that. Okay. That's very cool. I'm very happy about this right off the bat. Um, mm-hmm. okay. Okay. Number two. Um, yes. So here's number two. Are you folks ready? Yeah. Yep. From 1914 mm-hmm. kid auto races at Venice. Oh, of course. Okay. Yes. Oh, definitely. Um, Tom, do you know Kid Auto Races at Venice? No. Kid Auto Races at Venice is the first appearance of Charlie Chaplin's The Little Tramp. That is correct. That, that is, is yes, it's, it's, um, I, I've watched this several times. Uh, in fact, I watched it this past year in prep for our Modern Times episode. Um, because Modern Times is the final appearance of The Little Tramp. So now the registry has both the first and final appearance. Um, this is, it's, it's short kid auto races at Venice, right? I think it's like, is it like five minutes? Maybe it's longer. Uh, Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, it's short. It might be 20 minutes. I know it's, I know it's very, very brief. Um, yeah, it's, it's, um, I think it's like a, I, it's mostly just the tramp fucking around with a cameraman who's trying to film a car race. It's six and a half minutes. Six and a half minutes. Okay. Yeah. Kid auto race. I think it's cause it's maybe it's stock cars or something. I don't, maybe it's not real cars. Um, Whatever it is, Kid Auto Race at Venice, that's the first appearance of the little tramp. Um and that's that's why I'm assuming that, you know, I'm guessing that the reason suspense gets put in is because it's one of the early female filmmakers and it's I gotta be one of the early uses of split screen. I don't know if it's the first, um, because there may be some I mean, there's probably some Melies films or something like that that use split screen, but probably one of the early ones. And with Kid Auto Races, that's that's in there for the first appearance of the tramp, right? I, I think that's that's very clearly the reason that one's in. I mean, Correct. Yeah. yeah. Number three mm-hmm. from nineteen eighteen. Bread. Bread. Oh yes, of course. <laughs> bread. Uh, is this like an industrial about how bread's made? I was about to say, is that is it a documentary? So here is, so here is what. The National Film Registry had to say <laughs> about bread. It makes you build as a yeah <laughs> yeah that too. Uh, and apparently, it makes really crap beer. Um, <laughs> don't let the documentaries fool you. Uh, 
Build as a sociological photodrama, Bread tells the story of a naive young woman in a narrow-minded town who journeys to New York to become a star, but faces disillusionment when she learns that sex is demanded as the price for fame. Ida Mae Park, director and scenarist of Bread, was among more than a half-dozen prolific women directors working at the Universal Film Manufacturing Company during the period in which Los Angeles became the home of America's movie industry. Park directed 14 feature-length films between 1917 and 1920, and her career as a scenarist lasted until 1931. She reasoned that because the majority of movie fans were women, it follows that a member of the sex is best able to gauge their wants in the form of stories and plays. In an essay Park contributed to the book Careers for Women, she stated that women were advantaged as motion picture directors because of the superiority of their emotional and imaginative uh, faculties. In the two surviving reels of Bread, only one of only three Park directed that are currently known to exist, she displays an accomplished ability to knowingly vivify her protagonist's plight as she fends off an attacker and places her frail hopes in a mishappen loaf of bread that has come to symbolize for her the good things in life. Wow. Okay. So, I have not... First movie about this Harvey was, Weinstein? So, so this, this was the first movie, and when I read about this one, this was the movie I'm like, this is the one that is going to stump both yeah. of them, I guarantee you. And here's what's yeah, wild. I know... Item A Park, but that that was not in that Pioneers collection. Well, it sounds like there's what? not a surviving yeah. complete uh, film. It sounds what wow. it that's they only had what two reels that they had left of that movie. One of only three films Park directed that are currently known to exist. Wow. Yeah, and it was, but wasn't there something above there? Like, there's only two reels. They said. So it sounds like uh, there's uh, not much movie yeah. to like make a complete thing, and that this is really just yeah. to keep what's left, uh, you know, intact for at least some yeah. sort of um, archaeological cinematic reason. I tell you, I, I, well, I'm that sounds great. Like I'm not even saying that to be sarcastic. That I was very when you said bread, like when Tom said, "Is this some industrial thing about making bread?" That's what I thought too. So I was kind of like grousing about having to watch <laughs> some documentary oh, Upton Sinclair made about like how <laughs> the bread industry used to be made with like poop covered fingers because nobody walked the hands. <laughs> it's like, oh, this is awesome to watch at like, you know, before breakfast. Um, um yeah, no, but that actually sounds I'm I'm excited for that one. I'm gonna look that one up. I'm excited for that one. I like that. Wow. So our first, I was feeling good going into this first two right off the bat. I'm like, I might have seen all of these, and then bread. I'm gonna have no fucking use during any of the silent movie era. So I'll, I'll let you know. Um, I'll let you know when you can start maybe getting a little excited. So <laughs> wake me up. It's like yeah, ring the dinner bell when we get to the forties. <laughs> what are you? It's gonna be Kyle's getting through this, and all of a sudden it's like, oh, and of course this serene documentary about uh, Swan, and next up, Faces of Death. Like, what is it going to be against Tommen? It's uh, Army of Darkness. Kyle, please tell uh, me Faces of Death is not in the induction class. No, not not this time, Oh, folks. thank God. All right. All right. It's always the next year. All right. So at number four, mm -hmm. from 1927. Big jump. Yeah. The Battle of the Century. That sounds familiar. I have a couple questions right off the bat. 
One I need sure. to clear up right away before I even try and guess at this. There are a number of boxing matches, filmed boxing matches in the registry, like Johnson versus Jeffries. Before I make any other guesses, is this a boxing match? Because then I just, I got, no. it's not. Okay, so it's... Let me, no, let me verify. It's definitely not. I just want to get a better yeah. sense on exactly what this okay. is, but it is not. Is oh, it, oh, 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 yes, is yes, it a, yes. Oh, I know exactly what this is. Is it a, Tom, you think you know it or no? No, I'm, it just, it sounds familiar. Like, I must have uh-huh. heard about it. Honestly, it sounds like something that was, like, come up in, like, the is biography. It a, so, is it a document? So here, so here, I need to make I need to make one little amendment because it is not a it is not a boxing movie, uh-huh. but it involves like it's it, like it initially begins boxing. There's a little bit of let's say there's slapstick involved. Slap. So it's so it's a narrative then. It's not a documentary. Correct. It's a comedy. Yes. Notable a comedy stars. I no, it's not a Buster Keaton. Um, from from that from that era, yes. But it's so it's a notable it's a notable star. Ah, uh, yes. You said ah. Uh, is it like somebody that I would? Know? I only say, I I only say I only say because star implies singular. So it's a. Is it? It's too early for the Stooges. It's. Is oh 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 I know this. I think I know this. I could be dead fucking wrong. But I think I know this. Is this Laurel and Hardy? Yes. This is the big pie fight. Yes, it is. Holy shit. Yes. Yes. Battle of the Century. Okay. Okay. Does that ring any bells for you, Tom? Yeah, that does ring the bell. Yeah. It's a, it is so, I I didn't remember the boxing. There's boxing in this? According to the to the Wikipedia okay. thing, Hardy and Rolls Laurel at a boxing competition. That must be, yeah, that must be like the setup. The only thing I remember from this, and, and the big thing from this, is that it's, it is this massive pie fight. Right, yeah. so Tom, you've, yeah, by the end. you've seen it? Uh, I haven't seen it, but I've heard about it, and just, you know, in whatever history, whatever thing I was dealing with, I've heard, I've heard like, that's why it sounded familiar. I haven't yeah. watched it, but it, it's it's ringing the bells of something at some point I was researching or whatever. At some point in the here's movie, it's like this big... Oh, sorry, what's that, Kyle? No, you're good. Here's something you'll love is because earlier this year, like in the middle of June, it was released to the public on DVD and Blu-ray as part of a remastered compilation of Laurel and Hardy films by TCM. And then, obviously, later that year, they were able to induct it in the film registry. Wow. So I just thought you'd appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. I, I, I mean, it seems like... Yeah, I'm not going to speculate on, on where things are, but but that's great. I mean, I yeah, the only thing I remember from it, and there's probably a lot because those Laurel and Hardy, I don't know if this is a feature or a short. Is this a is it? How long is it? Does it say? Uh oh, it is a short it's a film. Short. Okay. It's a silent short film. It's only twenty. So I was going to say, like, the music box is a short, and that's pretty cut and dry. Like, you know, it gets you and gets you out. This boxing thing, I don't remember, but but I do know that there's a. It's just this massive, anarchic, pie fight where. It just keeps escalating. Like everybody, yeah. every time somebody throws a pie, it hits some other bystander. I think there's like a guy selling newspapers, a woman walking her dog, and like everybody just gets into this pie fight. It's it's fantastic. Okay. All right. Back in the game, baby. I think I know what we're talking about now. All right. I thought it was just gonna be some another filmed boxing match that we'd have to watch. Mm-hmm. I have nothing against boxing, but there's like several of them in the registry. At number five. Mm-hmm. From 1929, okay. with car and camera around the world, 
Nope. No. That I I um This is the one this is the second one I thought would stump you. Okay, so there's it's not is no, cuz I was going to like the title makes me think of like a like a one of those 50s or 60s like Chevrolet mini movies that they play at like the 64 World's Fair. But you're not uh, from what I from what I gather, you're kind of not far off. Okay. Maybe not exactly a World's Fair per se, but well, here let me just mm-hmm. I'll read you what the what the film registry had to say about this film. Excuse me. Filmed from 1922 to 1929 with car and camera around the world, documented the expeditions of Walter Wonderwell and Aloha Wonderwell Baker, the first woman to travel around the world by car. The couple, along with a crew of volunteers, crisscrossed dozens of countries in a caravan of Ford Model Ts, filming people, cultures, and historical landmarks on 35mm film. Learning the filmmaking craft along the way, Aloha served as camera assistant, cinematographer, editor, actress, screenwriter, interpreter, driver, negotiator, and at times director. The Academy has preserved both edited and unedited shots from with car and camera around the world, in addition to a few sequences and outtakes from other films, including The Last of the Bororos from 1931, The River of Death, 1934, and To See the World by Car, 1937. Wow. Okay. So, okay. So this, I, I, I'm going to be honest, not only, I'm a little embarrassed, not only have I not heard of this film, I've never heard of... You said her name was Aloha. Aloha Wonderwell Baker. Yeah, I, I looked her up. I looked her up. I don't know if I actually kept my. Oh, here I've got my little, little note here. Yeah, she was. She was still a teenager wow. in the 1920s, and she traveled 380,000 miles across 80 countries and was the first woman to circumnavigate the globe in a Ford 1918 model T and began, or she did it when she was 16. The journey took her five years and she did it from 1922 to 1927. Wow. Okay. So before I even comment on the the film, why the fuck do we not know about this person? Like I that was the first. Struggling. That was the immediate question that I had, and that was like, "Oh, this is one of those moments where it's like I have never heard this film, but I immediately understand why it's in here, and I am all like, for why it. is she not brought up every time like they do one of those Women's History Month PSAs? Like, is there something problematic? Like, what this woman sounds fascinating. Well, I don't want to know who she this sounds is. Like Amelia Earhart before Amelia yeah. Earhart. So it's like Jesus, and 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 it sounds like from what you said in the in the description, it sounds like she was kind of like a. Like how we talked about Robert Flaherty with the Nook of the North, um, or I'm sorry, we will talk about Robert Flaherty with the Nook of the. That episode is not out yet for the public, um, but we will talk about how Robert Flaherty also was just a guy on an expedition who got brought a camera and learned how to shoot film. It sounds like she was kind of like learning on the fly. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. Tom, thoughts? I mean, can't wait to get to it if I'm still alive. <laughs> In 16 years. Uh, but yeah, sounds pretty cool. Wild, yeah. And then, all right, here we go. Number six from 1943. Ooh, that's a big jump. Okay. Cabin in the Sky. Oh, yes, okay. Yes, yes, Cabin in the Sky. Tom, do you know Cabin in the Sky? No. Ooh, Cabin in the Sky fucking rules. Uh, Cabin in the Sky 
Um, it's it's not it's it's by no means the first uh, black musical film because I think I think uh, Hallelujah by King Vidor predates that. Um, and maybe Stormy Weather. I don't I don't know the timeline. But Cabin in the Sky, I think, is Vincente Minnelli directs it. Um, and it's got a great cast and some incredible music. It's just this lavish musical with a with an all black cast, um, with with uh, music, uh, you know, music that had not been really heard on screen that much. It was, it was it was black music. It was spiritual music in some cases. Uh, Lena Horne is in it. Who I uh, Lena Horne's extraordinary. Lena Horne is in it playing like a, a temptress. I believe the plot. I have not seen Captain in the Sky in many years. But I believe the plot is about a a man being tempted by the devil, um, and and his wife trying to get him away from the temptations of the devil. And the temptations being Lena Horne, and uh, Cabin in the Sky is is heaven. I'm sure that it's maybe not the most. Uh, I'm sure it doesn't maybe hold up well in some of the characters in it. But it's I mean incredible music, incredible dances, incredible performances. Uh, Lena Horne's extraordinary. Um, yeah, I, I, it's great, great musical. That's that's awesome. That's really good. I'm, I'm I'm fucking I'm su- that's the, this is the first one I'm surprised was not already in. To be honest, I would have thought that was in already. No. Yeah, Cabin in the Sky, very good. Great poster too. If anybody wants to look up the poster, it's very good. Excited to get to that one. Yeah, you, I Tom, I think you're really gonna fuck with Cabin in the Sky. All right. Moving on, I'm going to be curious your thoughts on this one, if you're familiar. Uh, from 1950. Okay. Outrage. 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 Okay, so I'm get Outrage. Is this a documentary or narrative? I believe it's a narrative. Let me verify. Tom, does this ring any bells to you? Because if it's a narrative, that seems more your wheelhouse. This does ring a bell. I'm trying to remember where I could have heard it from. Outrage. Is this... Is it... I'm trying to think, like, is it maybe like an... Is it maybe like an Otto Preminger or a... Let me see. Let me see if this helps you at all. Uh, It is... It's a B movie. A B movie. Does that help? That, at I all? mean, I, that that makes it even less likely that I've seen it. Wait, hang on. Wait, okay. B movie, B movie, sci-fi or B movie like crime noir? This looks like it might be closer to a crime noir. Well, okay. Who's who's the uh, Tom? Do you have anything else before I ask who the director is? Because I I I know the director might help me, but probably not. Who's the Who's the director? Ida Lupino. Okay. I heard it from. I have a. I will admit this right now, because uh, I'm going to sound terrible. And if the listeners want to yell at me, they can. One of my big blind spots with movies uh, is Ida Lupino, um, and that's not anything to do with a uh, female filmmaker. That's more to do with Ida Lupino worked predominantly in, like Kyle saying, B movie genre noir stuff. And that is so not my bag normally that like a lot of noir is my blind spot. I, yeah, I don't think I've seen any movie she directed. I mean, she was a she was a prolific she was a prolific actress as well. And I think I've seen maybe something she's acted in, but I I don't think unless 
was is merrily we go to hell her maybe i've seen i'm checking now to even see if i've seen one no that's dorothy arthur i've never seen a single film ida lupino has directed so this is this is entirely new to me tom have you seen this one no, but I've heard of it for the uh, uh, the Lupino connection. It's definitely come up uh, reading about her and looking into her past. It's not in that box set that Kino put out, but um, I feel like it'll get a release soon enough. Now, Kyle, what is? I'll tell read you, the yeah. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll read the paragraph. One of the things I wanted to just mention to give you a sense on why I'm pretty confident it was selected. Just doing my uh, research this morning is this is the only the second post-code Hollywood film to deal with the issue of rape. Wow. Okay. What? Okay. Yeah. What's the, what did they, what's the paragraph? What's it, what do they have to say about it? So here's the, so here's the paragraph for a few years, beginning in the late 1940s, Ida Lupino, Hollywood's only woman director of the period, made a series of distinctive films that spoke to the public's desires. She stated to see something that fits in with their own concepts of the way people actually live in the world and the problems they must meet and overcome. In outrage and unblinking examination of the traumatic effects of rape on a vulnerable young woman, Lupine, an actress of consummate grace and power, masterfully employed sound and silence, light and shadow, depth of field and cutting, camera movement and careful framing to cinematically capture the psychological impact of her character's shatter- shattered world. Inspired by a question that Italian neorealist director Roberto Rossellini posed to her at a party. When are you going to make pictures about ordinary people in ordinary situations? Lupino, along with her husband, Collier Young, associate producer Malvin Wald, and cinematographer Archie Stout, created a series of low-budget, impactful films with newfound talent like Mala Powers, Star of Hours. Lupino's films, Martin Scorsese has observed, addressed the wounded soul and traced the slow, painful process of women trying to wrestle with despair and reclaim their lives. Wow. I was going to say, Tom, Tom, I believe, uh, already bought the film. I think he's just in the uh, I'm in. Through the paragraph. <laughs> uh, I, bu- I bought wow. the negative. <laughs> wow. Okay, that sounds... You know, it's I, I will say it's surprising how many of those I mean, on a episode that I think comes out later, I talk about this movie I Want to Live, which is very explicit about uh assault and murder, and you watch a woman get gassed to death. It's surprising how many of these films are kinda very blunt about shit and then we just don't know about them. I'm amazed. I've wow. Yeah, I mean I've I've heard some Lapina films, I've never heard of Outrage. This is completely new to me. Um that that sounds great. Number eight from nineteen fifty five. The man with the golden arm. Okay. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Man with golden, yeah. Have you seen it, Tom? Haven't seen it, but I have I've heard of it. It's 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 on the pile. But I've, yeah, I've definitely that's... heard of this. Sinatra's the lead in it. Right? I think mm-hmm. I funny enough I just mentioned him last one. I think that's Otto Preminger, right? I think that's a Preminger. Film. Wait a minute. I that I God damn it. This is why I remember it. I literally just bought it in the Warner Archive set because Frank Sinatra directed it. There you go. Oh, Sinatra directed oh, not, it? No, no, no. I'm sorry. Frank Sinatra didn't direct it, but Frank Sinatra's in it. And it's just okay. that, that synopsis I saw on the side. I was like, all right, that sounds pretty dope. Otto Preminger, Frank Sinatra. Yeah, let's go for it. So, yeah. You're well, welcome. Dope, dope being the operative word because it is uh, a heroin story. Yeah. Um, Indeed. I have not seen it. I know of it. 
I have not well, seen it. Um, I should. I, I, I definitely should, and it's been on the list. I, you know what's surprising to me, and I may have to check, but yeah, that's weird. You know, there, and maybe I'm wrong. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna dismiss Man with the Golden Arm having not seen it. Um, I'm surprised given that thus far the list seems to be focusing on a lot of women directors, right? Um, I'm surprised if I was going to pick a heroine movie, especially from that time period, I would have gone with Shirley Clark's The Connection, which is also like the first found footage movie, um, over Man with the Golden Arm, but I haven't seen it. I, so I'm not, I'm not going to say, I'm just, I'm looking at that and I'm I'm surprised. I didn't know that had quite the the longevity and cachet that it does. So, I'm interested. I I, I should definitely watch it. I, I'm okay. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. Excited to get it in the mail. Yeah, I can't. I mean, like this is the first one that I've come across where I'm like, I'm not sure how that, like, where that comes in. I I'm not. Like I said, it's one of those things that I always, to be honest, like when I first learned about it, I always learned about it as solely as like Sinatra tried to do this as an Oscar play. And that was all I knew it as. Um, and I guess I always thought of it in like a, my mind always interpreted it as like a reefer madness type thing. But I guess, I, I guess I'm completely wrong. And I am going to, I'm going to start watching that as soon as I can. I feel like if I can find a copy of it. I mean, Tom has a copy of it now. So, wow. Okay. Man with a golden arm. Can I can I confess something, Tom? Yeah. When Kyle said the man with the golden, did a party of yeah, you thought golden man with yeah. the golden gun? Well, no. Uh, I had to double once check. Once he said fifty-five, I was like, okay, well, yeah, that's, yeah, that's true. That. Imagine. I don't think any of those count as American productions, but imagine if the first Bond film they put in is Man with the Golden Gun. <laughs> I mean, it would certainly be a decision. <laughs> the synopsis is just the lyrics to the theme song. Oh, Lord. All right. At number nine, mm-hmm. from 1963, Lilies of the Field. Okay, yeah. yeah. Another one I have not seen, but I know of. Tom, you know Lilies of the Field? Yeah. It's the, it's the, um, I, I, I haven't seen it, but I know, I know it for the fact that Sidney Poitier won the Academy Award for it. Yeah. Uh, making him the first, uh, african-american man to to win any oscar i think but particularly best actor yeah liz field i think i think nuns are involved somehow am i wrong i don't know i don't know much yeah. about liz field but traveling I've... handyman becomes the answer to the prayers of nuns who wish to build a chapel in the desert that feels like i no, yeah, i'm not going to sound too critical but the description you just gave really sounds like they went thanks for in the heat of the night. oh no this is before in the heat of the night i guess yeah Right, Kyle. What year did you say this was? 60... 63. Uh, 63. This, is, this yeah. is before in the heat of the night. This is before Guess Who's Coming to Dinner. This is, I think, Defiant Ones had maybe already come out. Maybe, I could be wrong. Yeah, five years before Defiant Ones. Okay, which is which is also, I mean, an incredible performance from Poitier. Um, yeah, that's that's what I'm interested to dive into. It's it's been on my list in terms, you know, my long watch list in terms of just the significance of it, but I have not seen it. Where's the field? Interesting. All right, this is this is I think where uh, Tom can start getting a little excited. So. <laughs> well, it's, it's just it, and <laughs> next one on the list is 2003 Jason X. 
Correct. <laughs> uh, at number 10, from 1971. Hell yeah. A Clockwork Orange. Oh, oh okay. Okay. Yeah. So this is this is interesting. This puts us in a dilemma, and I don't know if we'll keep this in for the listeners, but this puts us in a dilemma. Uh, no one uh-huh. listening has heard this yet, but this is one of my picks for the registry on an upcoming episode. Yep. So I may have to revise my choice. I think we may have to... I think the listeners may not get to hear it, but uh, I make a case for Clockwork Orange on an upcoming episode saying, like, it just... I didn't even have much to say, because I was just like, this is so obviously should be... Oh, wow, Okay. Now I'm feeling happy about this. I mean, I knew I knew when I saw it in a headline, but I'm just like I'm I'm finally vibing with the fact that a Clockwork Orange is in the registry. That's great. Yeah. Well, so it, obviously, this we've certainly seen that. isn't continuing. This yeah. Well, it, this also certainly isn't continuing any trend about uh, pro-female uh, <laughs> ideology in the uh, film registry because uh, the only women in this movie get the shit raped out of them. So yeah. Uh, uh, no, yeah. there's no. I don't, I don't see any themes coming up. Just there's, yet. there's, there's the two women that Alex has the the threesome with too. Um, but not the most progressive film. No, no. but a social satire. Um, I mean, look, I, I, I make my case for it that maybe you guys will hear, maybe you won't. I don't know how we're gonna do this. Um, I may just pick a replacement film and we'll just like splice that in, and you'll never know. Um, but uh, Clockwork Orange is extraordinary. It's, um, it's, it's one of Kubrick's best. It's one of his most iconic, um, and it is a movie that is just unrepentantly about the worst of humanity uh, in a way that I think is a healthy reminder right now. Uh, some people, um, I was actually going to quote another movie, but I know that I shouldn't quote that yet because I may get to talk about it later. Wink, wink. Teehee. All right. Coming in at number 11, also... From 1971. Ooh, doubled up. Sweet Sweetback's Badass Ooh, Song. Yes! Yep. Yes! Oh! Oh, this is the first genuine, like, joyful surprise I've had in this. Because the other ones I've had to, like, figure out or something like that. Oh, that makes me so happy. Oh, my God. Yes, that should have been in so long ago. Um, Tom, so you've seen... You know it or you've seen it or... I know it. I was going to buy it during the um, Vinegar Syndrome Black Friday sale, but I decided with uh, two other black exploitation movies. So, you know, I'll just go fuck myself. But um... <laughs> um, Sweet Sweetbacks is the weird thing is it's it's kind of it's the opposite side of the coin from Shaft because people always attribute the launch of black exploitation to Sweet Sweetback and Shaft. But the difference and I think we we talk about Sweet Sweetback a little bit on an upcoming episode um, where Gordon Parks comes up uh, on the learning tree. But Sweet Sweetback is the opposite of Shaft because Shaft is so polished, right? And so meticulously crafted. And Sweet Sweetback is scattershot. It has more in common with 60s avant-garde films than anything you see in black exploitation. You know, um, it's, it's, oh God, it's so wild. Like, I, I'm thinking back on it. That movie's... There's there's some ethical issues with how it was made, but that movie is is something else. Um, you know, uh, you get like this this quick cut multi screen montage of him running and he's yelling, "Come on, feet! Come on!" Oh, it's so good. sweet, sweet back, so good. I'm so glad they picked it. That's great. That makes me very happy. Ah, oh, that feels great. Oh, good. That was <laughs> so, a genuine surprise. I'm I so didn't happy. actually think you guys were gonna know that one. So oh that, no, yeah. Kyle, sweet, sweet back is um is 
awesome. And not only is it awesome, if you're curious, um, so that was directed by um, by Melvin Van Peebles. Unless I'm screwing up the names, Tom. It's Melvin's the father, right? It's Melvin. Yeah, Mario's the uh, son. yeah. Do you know Mel? Do you know Mario Van Peebles, Kyle? You might have seen him in nope. um. Uh, he's he's in um. Uh, he's in New Jack City, um. Nope. And right, New Jack City. I think I'm gonna sound terrible if I'm wrong, but uh, and Solo, which we covered on the show once, the '90s Solo. Um. Yeah. Not so, solo. Mario Van Peebles made a film. Almost like Dolomite is my name, but he made a film about the making of Sweet Sweetbacks, wherein he plays his father. Oh, it's yeah, it's called just called Badass. Uh, so if you're huh. curious about Sweet Sweetback, uh, check out Badass. It's it's definitely uh, worth a watch. Interesting. All right, yeah, I'm gonna have to take a look at that. Wow, Sweet Sweetback, fantastic. It's, I'm this is this is if we're going back to draft talk. This is the equivalent of when they finally uh, say that James Harden is going to the Nets from the Rockets. Like this, I'm just feeling happy. All right, coming in at number uh, number twelve here. Okay, from 1973, Watt Stacks. Yep. What was that? I know. I didn't hear that. Kyle, what was that? It's Watt Stacks. Watt Stacks. Sweet. Yep. Yes. Um, have you seen it, Tom, or you've heard of it? I've, I saw it back uh, back in the warehouse working days when I'd watch movies at work all day. <laughs> wow. So we've hit one that you've seen. I have seen parts of Watt Stacks because I believe the concert – Watt Stacks was a, was a concert in, in Watts, obviously. And it's like the um, – how, how do I put this in a, in a way? Like it's, it's the, uh, the less – uh, glaringly white version of the last waltz in a way it's like all these great artists um uh, uh um i'm trying to think um not sly and the family stone i don't know why i think they were there but they weren't it was um oh it was the staples sisters i think play that gig staple singers isaac, At, isaac hayes isaac hayes is the one Thomas. i've seen albert uh, king uh rance allen group emotions bar K's, mel and tim and uh you know, you got. Uh, I don't know why uh, I think Albert King was there then. Okay. And the thing that got me to watch it was uh, you got Richard Pryor doing his thing during this movie. I've watched the Isaac Hayes performances, and I have memories of watching Albert King, which I guess he's not there. But, um, but yeah, no, I've so I've seen parts of this. That that's that's a great pick too. I'm very happy about that. That's, uh, yeah, that's that's one of the. I mean, it's gotten it. It has it has less acclaim than your last waltz, your Monterey Pop, your Woodstock, but it's in that class. And I think it only has less acclaim because it was uh, very defiantly and and rightfully made for the Black Los Angeles community in the wake of the Watts riots. Um, so I'm very glad that's in that that yeah. rules. That rules. I want to. I'm. I think that's on HBO Max, so I will finally bite the bullet and watch the whole thing, um, which Good I should have done guys. Yeah, hell yeah. All right, coming in at number 13. And uh, it's one of the obvious ones, one of those headline grabbers, so my guess okay. is that both of you know this one. Mm -hmm. from, from 1978. Greece. It's, it's Greece. Yes, Greece is the word. Another one uh, that feels like, why did it take this long? 
I was I thought you were about to go in a very different direction with Greece is the were. Because <laughs> um, I have a, I have a different view of Greece, and uh, it's not the word; it's the <laughs> worst. Okay, well, here's my thing. I think it's also a case of, you know, good or bad. It's one of those cases where the cultural impact is undeniable. Well, yeah, you know? I'm not like going to say it's going to be in the registry. Obviously, yeah. I know what I know what the movie is. I just, you know, I'm leaning more towards uh, the Gone <laughs> with the Wind intolerance section of uh, discussing this movie and. Not some of the other picks, but yeah, man. Hey, uh, yeah. Greece, get some Travolta in there before he I, was talking to babies. He's yeah. I mean, I I like Greece. I mean, I I know I saw Greece for the first time like when I was a little little kid. Like my mom and one of her friends took me and her friends' kids to see it, uh, and then they didn't realize just how adult that movie was. Um, I like Greece quite a bit. I think Greece is a is a fascinating side effect of like that American graffiti happy days like man remember the 50s um yeah I mean it's it's an iconic movie musical and you know I always thought it was earlier than that but I'm I'm definitely wrong uh, an iconic movie musical um some amazing musical numbers I mean I think to this day you can't go to a carnival and see one of those uh those big uh the spinning wheels you're supposed to walk through and not think of you're the one that I want um, you know, and uh, Olivia Newton John is at her best in it. Um, you know, you got some amazing performances in that film. Uh, Eddie Deason, <laughs> I don't know why I went with Eddie Deason second, but yeah, great performances in that film. Great, great wow. music. Uh, <laughs> yeah, God, God bless you. Uh, great, right? Eddie Deason's in that, right? I don't know, I probably. Think so. Yeah, Eddie Deason's in that. Um, yeah, okay, I. That's it. That's one of those ones that I look at, and it's it's more okay. You know, like uh, sweet sweetbacks is it should be in there, but it's still a pleasant surprise because you know uh, it's it's not exactly the one that gets uh, talked about out in the suburbs or anything like that. But the registry's always been very good with with that kind of representation. But Greece, yeah, that's an obvious one. That's um that's a populist choice, but I'm all in favor of it. It's a it's a necessary inclusion. All right, um, moving on to number fourteen. And uh, I'm pretty sure I can give. I can't remember what episode, but I'm pretty sure I have to give a. Uh, I have to cr- give credit where credit is due, Tom, because from 1980, mm-hmm. it's the Blues Brothers. Hell yeah! Did you know this beforehand, Tom? No. Oh yeah! Good. Love awesome. it. Yes. Yes. Fuck that's yes. one of the ones I saw in the headline. I'm like, Tom's gonna have to redo his pick for a future episode. I don't um, think we should redo the picks. I think it should be a good thing to for people to hear us sometimes strike gold. Yeah. Let's yeah, let's yeah, we'll, can you get strike gold? We'll, we'll talk about it. I think the other my big thing is that's an episode that will come out in March. So it's very off from the time. But yeah, Blues Brothers. Uh I mean Tom makes great for, case for it in a future episode, but for right here Tom, do you want to make a little explanation on the importance of Blues Brothers for folks? Uh well, it's important for a lot of reasons. I mean, it was uh pushed comedy into a different realm uh it was uh it kind of launched the idea that you know snl could make movies out of things which hasn't really been uh uh all that successful outside of this in wayne's world but it was um it it pushed musicals into a new realm uh i think mainly the biggest uh thing that this movie does is that it 
revived uh, blues music and all of these musicians like Ray Charles and Aretha Franklin and B.B. King and all these people. And, uh, you know, they, they, all of these uh, musicians talked about how like they were kind of in dire straits at the time. Music, the industry wasn't looking for them anymore, weren't paying for them. And John Landis and, um, you know, Aykroyd and Belushi loved this music and they uh, really, really did amazing work shooting a musical based around that music and, you know, giving Aretha her time to shine and bringing her back, giving Ray his time to shine, come back and all that stuff. And um, it's one of the most unclassifiable movies. When you watch it, you're just like, what even is this? But you're never not entertained watching it because it's so joyous and so unique and just truly, truly one of a kind. And uh, yeah, the Blues Brothers uh, rules. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. I'm glad you liked that, man. I'm really, really glad that that was picked. Um, Let's move on to number 15 from 1982. Losing Ground. I know of losing ground. I have not seen losing ground. It is a, it is another blind spot for me, but I know losing ground. Tom, do you know losing ground? No, I have not heard of this one. All right here. Here's the, uh, here's the paragraph that they give. Uh, one of the first feature films directed by an African American woman, Kathleen Collins's losing ground tells the story of a marriage between two remarkable people, both at a crossroads in their lives. Losing Ground centers on the experience of Sarah, an African-American philosophy professor whose artist husband, Victor, rents a country house for a month to celebrate a recent museum sale. The couple summer idol becomes complicated as Sarah struggles to research the philosophical and religious meaning of ecstatic experience and to discover it for herself. Yeah, okay. So I I, I heard of this film the first time um, a couple years back, Slate did an article, I may bring it up other times in the show, called The Black Film Canon, where they picked 50 films by black filmmakers uh, because black filmmakers are so left out of the conversation of the cinematic canon. Um, And this was one of the ones they picked, so that was kind of how I heard of it. Uh, Admittedly, I mean, we are uh, just in film culture, we're terrible. Uh, We're we're often terrible with... uh, any uh, giving credit to any non-white directors, but particularly black female directors are so neglected uh, in the cinematic conversation. And I mean, I think about the fact that I'm, I'm looking right here, Kathleen Collins, who directed losing ground, I think didn't get, did not get another feature film. They, I mean, you know, to make a film that's now it's in the registry, just didn't get to make another feature film. Um, uh, Cheryl, I mean, and, and I bring her up on another episode, Cheryl Dunyay doesn't get to make another film. Um, there's, there's so well, many of these directors who don't get to make other films. There might be a big reason why Kath, uh, Kathleen Collins didn't get to make another film. She died six years after making this movie. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I'm, I'm seeing that here, yeah. Um, Which, I mean, same with um, the main actor in this movie, Bill Gunn, the guy who did Ganja and yeah. Hess and Oof. wrote The Landlord for Hal Ashby, died seven wow. years after this. So, what a... Uh, and fucking Dwayne Jones died six years after. What the fuck? Wow. Fuck, man. Saying Bill Gunn now, I'm just wondering when personal problems is getting in. But wow. Okay. Yeah, this is one that I am. This is this is one that is not only uh, a, a a blind spot for me. I it's it may be possible that this was kind of hard to find too. 
Possibly. That's think, probably true. I think when that Slate article came out, I tried to track a lot of these down, and I think at the time, Watermelon Woman was hard to find, uh, and a bunch, uh, another, another Girl on the IRT, I think might have been hard to find at the time. This might have been hard to find, but I think it's on Criterion Channel now, and it's been one of those ones that I am, I have been telling myself I'm going to get to, and now I, I need to jump on that. Well, okay. well, how's this for a nice little stat? Uh, Dwayne Jones, his first three movies he was ever in as an actor are now all in the National Film Registry. Really? Night of the Living Dead. Ganja. Huh? Wait, is Ganja Hess in the film registry? No, it's not. It is not. Oh, I was going to say. It but, should well, be. It probably, it probably will be soon if you got this in there, yeah. which is a Bill, Nunn, uh, Bill Gunn thing. So, you know. Uh, Dwayne Jones, he's going to be hitting uh, the John Cazale numbers soon. So good on you, Dwayne. Yeah, hell yeah. Good on you, Bill, too, man. Fucking ain't Good on you, Kathleen, wherever you may be. So let's move on to number 16, also from 1982. Illusions. Okay, okay. I will admit, I would not have known Illusions had Julie Dash not tweeted about it. Interesting. I follow Julie Dash on Twitter. Uh, Julie Dash, um, for those who might not write his name, is the director of Daughters of the Dust, uh, which is an incredible film uh, that I believe... Daughters of the Dust is in the registry, I think. I'm almost certain it is. Um, right? Let me see. Now I'm driving myself crazy. Daughters of the Dust is is a remarkable film. Um uh and yes daughters of the dust is in the national film registry that got inducted in 2004 so we'll be covering that a lot sooner than this one but daughters of the dust incredible film so i followed julie dash on twitter and she tweeted out that this film uh is now in it's apparently a short film she made uh prior to daughters of the dust i have not seen it yet but it seems great uh tom are you familiar with this at all no, I'm not. Uh, it's a short, so it'll be uh, you know, a lot easier to watch for you know episode purposes if you know we're alive by then. But you know, uh, <laughs> seems like we um, like there's a concerted effort to broaden who gets into the film registry with this. Uh, I mean, this year what collection. I what I think is interesting is that, you know if you look at these other classes, that tends to be the the um the case uh that they've they've made a concerted effort a lot but what i think is interesting is it seems like they are kind of in some cases um doubling up on something like i love the fact that they could have just gone daughters of the dust is in we have covered julie dash we never need to touch her stuff again you know what i mean they could take that thing that so many people do when they make lists or when they make archives where they're like well we have to get one in but we don't want to overload it so I, I don't know Illusions. I'm very excited to watch it, but I... Um, Kyle, can you read us the paragraph of that one? Is that okay? I want to hear what uh, that yeah. is. Give me one second. I'm so sorry. No, that's uh, fine. There we go. Okay, cool. Um, you said for... Yes, for Illusions. Illusions. So, born in New York City, Julie Dash is a filmmaker, music video, and commercial director, author, and website creator. Her film studies began in Harlem in 1969, but eventually led her to the American Film Institute and UCLA, where she made the Diary of an African Amer- or the Diary of an African Nun, based on a short story by Alice Walker, which won a student award from the Directors Guild of America. 
Dash's critically acclaimed short film Illusions later won the jury prize for Best Film of the Decade awarded by the Black Filmmakers Foundation. Created for her MFA thesis at UCLA, Illusions is set in World War II-era Hollywood and explores the nature of Hollywood racial politics, fantasy, and the illusion of racial identity. That rules. That awesome. That sounds, yeah, that sounds great. So cool. Um, I think I'm watching that when we finish recording. I'm going to be 100% honest. I think I'm going straight to that when we're done. <laughs> that rules. That sounds great. Um, that sounds awesome. And if anybody listening has not seen Daughters of the Dust, look that up. Uh, that also rules. Julie Dash, open invitation. Come on the podcast anytime. We, uh, we've, we have more than, uh, gotten halfway through this list, but, uh, before I get into it, how, how are we feeling about this list so far as, as a whole? What's our, what's our initial reaction here? I mean, um, I'm looking to get into all, most all of the movies I haven't seen here, you know, being Blues Brothers or Clockwork Orange. So, you know, excited to get into it. I have a big smile. I'm so happy. Like, this is making me very... I wasn't sure what we were getting into, because to be honest, when I saw the headlines with the populist film titles, right, I kind of figured... And it's wrong of me to do this, but like, I kind of figured, like, okay, those are the big ones that everybody knows, and then the rest of these are going to be things that are, like, more historically significant, or things that are... Uh, either I've seen them, and they're just things that I look at and go, yeah, I understand why this is in here. Or ones that I haven't heard of that, again, you kind of go, yeah, I get why it's in here, and then you move on. But there are so many of these that I'm I'm enthusiastic about. Um, I mean, uh, Watt Stacks and Sweet Sweet Back is just, it's so delightful uh, to know those are in there. Uh, and Suspense makes me so happy, because I now that I remember that one, uh, that again, that, that, that was kind of cool. Yeah. These are, these are good picks. I'm, I'm, there's some I haven't seen, uh, you know, that I'm excited to watch, but these are, these are good picks, you know, there is a freebie that I know all three of us are aware of, but outside of that freebie, have we gotten through all of the picks that you both are aware of? Or are there still, no, uh, no, there's, I know about, um, I know about, two more recent ones i mean one we've already addressed because it's the one that uh phil and kenny brought up with tom okay and then there's another one that is the one that was in every headline so if somehow tom has managed to avoid hearing about this one i will be fucking surprised yeah i will too okay so Certainly. i'm gonna move us, i'm gonna move us forward then to number 17 mm-hmm. from 1993 big jump okay the joy luck club Ooh. Okay. No, no. Um, that's interesting. Okay, Joy Luck Club. Now that's interesting because I think Joy Luck Club is Wayne Wang. I think Wayne Wang's got two in the registry now. Wang, Wang, Wang has a film. Chan is missing. Chan is missing. Yeah, which was selected for 1995. See, this is what we were talking about before. How they're they're. I I love that they are doubling up on some of these filmmakers. I love that there are now two Julie Dash films in the registry. I love that there are two Wayne Wang films in the registry. Um, you know what I'm happy about? I remember watching. Tom, have you seen Joy Luck Club? Uh, no, but I, I did buy it after, um, Crazy Rich Asians came out because they kept playing that trailer in the Alamo pre-show before that movie. That's the thing. Joy Luck Club, I remember reading the book in high school and I remember watching the film in high school. 
Um, and I think that at the time, the film was sort of treated as like a homework movie. Like, a, oh, that was a thing that came out and it was cute and we moved on. Uh, but it wasn't really like, a, you know, it wasn't treated as like, a, it wasn't treated respectfully as a as a work of film. But I believe that the, when Crazy Rich Asians was coming out, uh, like Tom, you're saying how it played in the pre-show. I remember being a bunch of articles too, pointing out like, oh, Crazy Rich Asians is the first film with an all Asian cast or majority Asian cast since Joy Luck Club and how long that had been. And I think that that sparked a conversation that led to, amongst other things, a reevaluation of the Joy Luck Club and coming to recognize it as more than just, oh, it's that movie about, you know, the the women, right? I think that, they, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe you saw something different, but I feel like there was a, a notable reappraisal of that movie. No, I think there was. I definitely feel like there was. That movie was uh, more in the conversation when Crazy Rich Asians came out. And, um, I mean, that's why I bought the movie, just because of the, yeah. I mean, the trailer was coming out and people were talking about it in such a way that I was like, okay, I guess, yeah, like you said, it, it isn't a homework movie they show when, you know, you got a sub substitute teacher in school. But, um, I think, yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm excited to get to this one. I think it also helps that there's also a um a Ming Na Wen renaissance you know i mean like i it was it was one of these things that i thought was so funny that there were you know Ming Na Wen was a was a you know she starred in, in Joy Luck Club she was a voice in Mulan she was the voice of Mulan in Mulan um but like in the early 2010s when she was on Agents of Shield uh there was suddenly like a lot of people got this you know you could feel a lot of people kind of being like who is this person where did they come from and it's like she's been around she was in street fighter like she's been around for a long while guys i think that was um, really kind of the the conversation i heard about her being in shield was just people being like where has she been yeah is, is, is it really gonna take this like show that's the redheaded bastard child of marvel to like get her work and i mean hey you know she's heavily back in the more uh yeah. not the, Mar the, the disney family she's you know yep. she's a disney legend i believe i think yeah, she, she got i think she was made a disney legend mm -hmm. and she also has a cameo in mulan this year yes. right yeah is, is it a vocal cameo an actual like she's she, visual she's visual she is at the so she is the one who presents mulan to the emperor at the end yeah okay um, well yeah you know it, just looking at her fucking career, it just kind of seems like she got stuck in like TV land, yeah, doing just like whatever TV job she can get. Like she, oh, she was on fucking uh, uh, ER for like ten years. Yeah, well, I mean, like I think, and that all ties into. I mean, even around around that same time, Sandra O oh is doing um, Killing Eve, and there's this reevaluation of like why has it taken so long for um an asian actor to host snl why is it taking so long for an asian actor to win you know an emmy or get a nomination and i think it was this it's this real fulcrum point in the conversation about representation and i think that it is not a case where the joy luck club was inducted oh because we were having a conversation about representation i think the joy luck club gets inducted because the conversation around representation led to a revisiting of this film and a reevaluation of this film that led to a lot of people discovering how good it is. I mean, look, it's a product of its time 
and you certainly feel the 90s in it, but it's a great movie with some great performances, and I'm really glad that it's that it's in. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, I feel like a big thing with its uh, reputation for a while was mainly that Wayne Wang kind of disappeared up Hollywood's ass for a while with shit like Made in Manhattan and Because of Winn-Dixie and Last Holiday, where it's just like, oh, is this a guy we were supposed to ever take seriously? And then seems like he uh, broke out of that, and uh, people can now really engage with his work on a legitimate level. And um, yeah, uh, as, as bad as this country is with representation in terms of uh, black and Latinos and women, uh, I really think it's a lot worse when it comes to Asian uh, representation. Cause uh, I mean, Jay Kim was talking to us about that. Um, again, our audience is going to hear this, but our guest for on the waterfront is an Asian American actor in Hollywood talking about just how difficult that is. Um, and the joy club is just, again, I'm so glad it exists. And I think that it comes from this, fascinating period in in media in the early 90s um and and tom i'm thinking to test this too like i feel like in the early 90s and maybe i'm from my perspective as like a kid in this a white kid in the suburbs there was a lot more diversity in media at least insofar as you had a the joy luck club the wood um on tv uh you had the margaret cho show you had um so many uh black-led sitcoms uh, Will Smith was the biggest movie star in the world. There was a lot. I feel like there was more, at least Hollywood taking chances on on this kind of representation. I mean, and those films. This was when Jackie Chan exploded. We had yeah. the Rush Hour movies. Chris Tucker was one of the biggest stars in the world. I mean, Eddie Murphy had his little resurgence with the Nutty Professor movies. Uh, you know, Jackie Chan Adventures. And uh, and what's interesting, like what's interesting is that then those movies that came out of that period seem to have endured in households within those communities in a way that mainstream pop culture has failed to recognize. Like if, if, you know, if you were a kid and you went over to, uh, I remember being a, a kid and, and, and I was at a friend of mine's house and a friend of mine was, was, um, was, uh, Latino and his, his mom was watching, like had a VHS of Selena. And I just remember like, you know it was on and of course and i was like i've never seen it and it seemed like i had just said i had never seen um a tv before like it was a reaction like what do you mean you haven't seen it everyone's seen this you know i think that there are certain movies that everybody has in their family or in their culture that they have seen and they assume that everyone has seen i mean let's face it it's a much more uh mainstream accepted film but like yeah, tom and i growing up as italian americans like you know in italian American families of course, everyone has seen Goodfellas from the age of five, right? Like, everyone's seen it. Everyone quotes it. And when you find out somebody hasn't, you're like, what? How? How did that happen? You know, so I think Joy Luck Club occupies that space. And I'm very glad that that is it's getting a, a wider audience again. And I hope that that means that because it's in the registry, I hope somebody gives us a real nice home video edition of it. You know, maybe a certain collection will now find that it meets the criteria. Maybe. That certainly is possible. That would fucking rule. All right. Well, moving on to number 18. I'm so happy. That makes that Joy Luck Club is a big surprise. That makes me very happy. I, I, I had a feeling that was one that you didn't know about, but oh. I had a feeling it was going to be one that you were going to be happy about. So I would have never expected it, like in a million years. That's great. That's so good. <laughs> From 1994, 
we have the devil never sleeps. I don't know what the fuck that, that sounds like a Tom film, but I don't know. I don't know what that I is. The devil never sleeps. I don't sleeps. think it is. It's yeah, not. this is another one I thought was going to stump you. So here's here's what the here's what the paragraph is that they have for this. Uh-huh. Early one Sunday morning in July, the filmmaker receives a phone call informing her that her beloved uncle Oscar Ruiz Almeida has been found dead of a gunshot wound to the head in Chihuahua, Mexico. His widow has declared his death a suicide. Most of his family, however, cry murder and point to a number number of possible suspects, his business partner, his ranch hand, the widow herself. In The Devil Never Sleeps, Lourdes Portillo returns to the land of her birth to find out exactly who her uncle was and to investigate the circumstances of his death. She explores irrational as well as logical explanations, searching for clues on both sides of the border and in the history of her family. Old tales of betrayal, passion, lust, and supernatural visitation emerge as we follow the filmmaker deep into the life of a community in the homeland of Pancho Villa. The Devil, the devil Never Sleeps exposes the loves and hatreds of a Mexican family convulsed by the death of one of its members. The emotions that Portillo captures in her particular blend of traditional and experimental techniques bring out the nuances of Mexican social and family order, poetic tragic humorous and mythic this film crosses the borders of personal values cultural mores and the discipline of filmmaking itself it is a key film by a latina filmmaker well um is this i know what my number one to uh check out as soon as possible because i want i want to clarify is this a this is a a narrative film wait it's a documentary this is a documentary this is yeah that Fucking rules! Oh my god! Yeah. yeah. Oh my wait. god! I can't wait to see this. What and the um, hell? Uh, immediately, you already see like um, why it would be picked. One, it sounds awesome. Uh, two, female director, um, a female director of color being of Mexican persuasion, and um, it's a documentary, so we haven't really gotten many of those thus far this year, and um, it. Hits uh, America's current uh, never-ending fascination with true crime. So uh, yeah, it's like wow. uh, like a royal flush of uh, of an entry here. So yeah, I can't I can't wait to get to this one. That fucking ru- oh my god! Like I the whole time Kyle's describing this, I'm thinking like it sounds like a documentary, but that seems like unlikely because if it was a real documentary, I would have you know like if it was a, if it was a uh, a true documentary. Uh, I would so have this, heard of it, so it must be like a, a pseudo documentary, like a David Holtzman's diary. No, that rules. Yeah, so, and this is a um, a Mexican U- U.S. co-production, it would seem. Oh because, shit! Um, yeah, I mean, fucking a, I'm, I'm, I'm down to clown. Let's get into this one as soon as possible. So we are on number nineteen mm-hmm. from nineteen ninety nine. Buena Vista Social Club. Ooh, whoa. Is Buena Vista Social Club an American film? Well, uh... I mean, it has to be. They inducted it, but... Yeah, it has to be. Um, I guess Vim Vendor... It is an international co-production of Germany, the United States, the United Kingdom, France, and Cuba. What an insane combo. Okay. Yeah, I've seen Buena Vista Social Club. I love Buena Vista Social Club. Um, I just didn't know it was American, because, like Tom says, it's Vim Vendors. So, Vim Vendors is a German uh, filmmaker. And it's about a Cuban yeah. thing. <laughs> like, 
Um, well, I know Kenny and Phil are going to be mad, but um, they're going to be mad. Well, they didn't like this movie when they reviewed it on. Podcast oh, right, yeah, yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, two docs in a row, but you know, two docs from the '90s. Also, that's pretty yeah. interesting. Uh, two docs about Latin American culture, which is no, not Latin American, but Latin culture. Yeah, dumb shit. Um, I don't know what you mean. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I guess this one's a little more lighthearted. Uh, but have you, you seen know. it, Tom? Yeah, Kyle, do you have any familiarity with Buena Vista Social Club? I'm I'm aware just based on my research, but I don't have any frame of reference outside of that. So I'm obviously yeah. So it started as an album, right? If I'm not mistaken, right. yeah, it started as an album. It was a Ry Cooter produced album that was basically like we're going to bring all this Cuban music to a global audience, right? And I heard the album because it was on the Rolling Stone 500 albums list. And that album is incredible. It's so good. The music is amazing. Um, hmm. Like it immediately hits you. So so if nothing else, Kyle, when you are done with this, when you're looking, without even watching one of the films, just listen to the album. The album, Wayne Vista Social Club, is is incredible. Uh, we had a professor in college who loved it. Uh, so we talked about it a lot. Um, and one time I brought a guitar in and he just started playing it. Man was a wild man, and we love him. Oh, how sweet! All right. Um, but yeah, well, and then the documentary is about these musicians and all that. So it's it's yeah, I, I totally understand why it gets in. Uh, my objections have nothing to do with it being in. I just did not realize it was an American co-production. My 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 guess is that the album's probably not too far behind in terms of the. Uh, the if it's not already just, in, yeah. It isn't yet, so yeah. that's kind of why I'm wondering. My oh guesses. man, it's fucking Vim Vendors is in the national film. I thought if you, I figured if Vendors was getting in to be for Paris, Texas, but this is also great. Well, it, it, it seems like I said uh, a pretty uh, concerted effort to be as diverse as possible because uh, <laughs> they're about to indu- induct one of the best films of maybe the whitest man to ever direct a movie. So, um, oh, 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 let's not tease it too much. I won't tease too much, but... Um, <laughs> but we know it's... I didn't know if you knew about that one. Uh, we'll, we'll get into it. We'll get there. That's the one I know. Yeah, that's been all over the headlines. Okay. Buena Vista Social Club. Unexpected so, choice. Good choice. Number 20. These are the last... What? These are the Final last five. few films? Yeah, here we go. So, um, this one's an interesting one. Uh, I feel like if anybody's going to have heard about this film, it's going to be you, Mike. Um, okay. I don't know it. I could not find much about it outside of this initial paragraph. But according to the summary, from 1993 through 2001. Oh, I thought you were doing a bit. Okay, this is an actual thing that only I would know. Yes. I thought yes. you were teeing up a certain movie, and I, I'm okay. Apparently, not no. Really. I am. I, I I am. No, I, am. I mean a this different. Is, yes. Okay. Yes. From the the movie that I'm talking about is, according to this, from 1993 through 2001, it's a film called The Ground. The Ground. From 1993 to 2001. It's from Robert Beavers. Oh, okay. I know Robert Beavers. Um, I know Robert Beavers, but I don't. The Ground. That's a weird. Okay. Um, yeah, I don't, I know him from, uh, from a couple of his other films. He has one, 
Oh, for God's sake. I'm not going to remember the title fully because it's a weird long title. Uh, I think I'm going to look it up. My Something about uh, hands outreached. My hand outstretched to the winged distance. So I know my hand outstretched to the winged distance. Um, but I don't know the... Oh, I guess the ground is part of that. I'm looking this up now. The ground is part of my hand outstretched to the wing distance film cycle. So I do not know. I'm, I have not seen my hand outstretched to the wing distance, but I'm okay. So the ground is part of that. No, I'm unfamiliar with the ground. I know of Robert Beavers. Um, I have never seen a Robert Beavers film because Robert Beavers uh, does not. Uh, let these things come out on home video or anything like that. The only way to see them yeah. is when he screens them. So I have not seen them. What is the Tom? Do you have any thoughts before Kyle tells us what the ground is? Because I am at a loss. So we basically have no way of covering this movie. Uh, listen, it, it'll be it'll be years from now. Uh, it'll be in the Library of Congress. I'm sure we can figure something out. We will figure. Uh, the... Tom, we figured out the crowd. That's true. We did. We did. Uh, the films of Robert Beavers are exceptional for their visual beauty, oral texture, and depth of emotional expression. Beavers' films occupy a noble place within the history of avant-garde film, positioned at the intersection of structural and lyrical filmmaking traditions. They seem to embody the ideals of the Renaissance in their fascination with perception, psychology, literature, the natural world, architectural space, musical phrasing, and aesthetic beauty. The ground uses seemingly simple components, the sun-baked landscape of a Greek island, the blue waters of the Aegean Sea, and images of a man chiseling stone to conjure the fundamental experience of holding something close to one's heart. I mean, that sounds like a... I'm, I'm in. Uh, I would love to watch it. Um, I'm not going to get to watch it until we're all able to go to cinemas again and he decides to let people watch it, but... Um, that sounds cool. I don't, again, Beavers is somebody I'm not super familiar with, like his, his work. Um, but I am aware of him. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I would love to see it. And I'm, and I think it's, I, I'm happy insofar as I am always happy when the registry decides to honor non-narrative work. Um, and they're, they're good about that. I mean, this season, the people listening to season one, we have no uh, experimental films, non-narrative films to cover. Um, but as a little tease, next season we get one, and it's one of the greatest, and we start going down that road, which will be a whole new uh, path to chart with this show. Um, so I'm always happy when there's some recognition of of, um, of non-narrative film in the registry. So I don't know the ground, but I'm I'm happy that it's there. I thought I I thought Kyle was making a joke and trying to tee up uh, a movie that we both know is on the registry, and I thought he was doing oh, a bit. But oh, what I'm? What do you mean? I'm just uh, why I look. Yeah, okay. We've already acknowledged. We've already already acknowledged that up to this point, you know, these picks just keep coming, okay. and they don't stop yep. coming. Yep, yep. And yep. they don't stop yep. coming, yep. and they yep. don't stop coming, and they don't stop coming because at number twenty one from two thousand and one. It's motherfucking Shrek. <laughs> I have seen. Say about Shrek? There was no way to avoid this one because Twitter was losing it. This and another pick, uh, Twitter ha has been losing their fucking minds about. Um, I here's here's what I'll say: Shrek has to be in the registry. Uh, sincerely, there's no 
argument. Um, its impact on on animated film and culture has been immense. And I'm not just talking about the meme culture, uh, though that's certainly a factor. Um, but let's not forget Shrek won the first Oscar for Best Animated Film, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Best Animated Feature. That was the first one. Yep, that is correct. It's Shrek and then Spirited Away. Um, yep. So you have that. Shrek uh, screened at the Cannes Film Festival and competed for the Palme d'Or, and there was conversation about it potentially winning the Palme d'Or. Um, I think that it's not all of its influence on on the medium of animation has been a positive influence. I think that it pushed a reliance on adult jokes and winks and nudges that so many films have done since and unsuccessfully. And I think there's a lot of elements that have aged poorly, but I think that Shrek, when it came out, it, it was, it was, it felt revolutionary. You know, there was so much buzz around this. It was, it was inescapable because it felt like a new step in animation and it made DreamWorks, which at this point, like up until Shrek, DreamWorks had what? They had Prince of Egypt, and that won an Oscar for song, but it wasn't exactly, it, it, it wasn't a Disney killer, you know? And then they have Road to El Dorado, and I think the Sinbad movie, and DreamWorks. Oh, God, I forgot Sinbad. Yeah, the, 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 the Catherine Zeta-Jones, Brad Pitt, Sinbad movie um, that bombed. And they looked like they were just knockoff Disney. And so Disney was dominating and they were distributing the Pixar films dominating and Shrek is what carved out a path for DreamWorks and what carved out kind of this template for this is how you can do animation and kids animation and not be ripping off Disney. Um, in fact, you could be ripping on them in this case. Um, yeah, I think... Look, Shrek has been memed to death, and I think that some of the influences, the fact that while Disney did have, uh, did start this by casting Robin Williams as the genie, uh, or Angela Lansbury as the as the teapot, this this really kicks off the movement of animated films stepping away from voice actors and literally just hiring celebrities so they can put their names on the poster. Um, and have them go plug the sh the kids movie on Leno or whatever, which is a trend that has not been helpful uh, to the medium. But I think it's, you know, it's its impact is undeniable, particularly in 2001. 2001 is in, you know, we all talk about 1999, great movie year, of course, but 2001 is an underrated year for movies that kind of helped move the conversation one way or another, particularly fantasy films. Uh, and Shrek is among them. So, yeah, I get it. I, I mean, look, there's, there's plenty of animated films that I would put in before Shrek. Uh, our listeners will hear in our upcoming Snow White episode a movie that 100% should be in the registry <laughs> before Shrek, but I can't argue that it shouldn't be in. You know, I don't, I don't see an argument for that. Tom? Yeah, that's basically what I was saying to Kenny and Phil before, is that um, sometimes you have to really, really do a lot of work to look past the actual movie and look at the impact the movie had. And um, Shrek has aged like fine dog shit, uh, but, <laughs> but 
its impact is undeniable. We still feel it today. Um, there's a good argument to be made that if it wasn't for Shrek, studios might not be completely over-reliant on 3D uh, computer animation, that there might still be a robust 2D animation. But with Disney flagging in that department at the time and um, uh, Pixar starting to really kickstart things and then you have this it really seemed like a every studio just said okay enough of that we're doing the 3d thing like you said we're doing the big actors doing all the roles thing and uh we're gonna have um annoying pop songs in every every second of these movies to uh coax the children into buying the soundtrack or just dancing in the middle of the theater like raving lunatics and have horrible dated the second the box office returns for the opening weekend come out references <laughs> um it's a movie that's truly done a lot of harm to the industry but in uh in that effect it's been very uh impactful uh like and it was the first movie to win best animated feature uh in stark contrast to the movie that won second be- uh, uh the second movie to win best animated feature the year later it's spirited away um you know uh, it, also very... changed, it also changed the conversation around animated films a bit. I mean, I think that a constant struggle when it comes to animated movies is adults don't go see them alone, right? I mean, yeah. even something like Spider-Verse, we would have such a hard time, hard time convincing people like, no, you should go see it. Because um, like, oh, it's kidship. I remember the conversation around Shrek because it had the grown-up humor and all that. I remember there being a conversation around Shrek about adults actually going to see it without kids, which is a hard thing for an anime. I mean, that's clearly what Jeffrey Katzenberg was after. That was clearly his goal with this. Uh, and it succeeded. He made an animated film that felt like something different that at the time there was, I mean, it was undeniable. It was, it was an undeniable thing. Like there was no backlash to it at the, at that point. Cause it was just people were like, Oh my God, this, I haven't seen this before. I've never seen something quite like this. I can giggle at it like it's, you know, an adult-oriented cartoon, like it's The Simpsons or Liquid Television or whatever, but also I can take my kids to it. Um, I mean, I still, you know, and there's so much of it that's embedded in our culture. I can still recall the the score. The it's, and with without it, DreamWorks animation is dead. Without Shrek, you don't get How to Train Your Dragon or, or, any, or, or the Kung Fu Pandas. Or any of the films that, you know, maybe do a lot more. But it's kind of like Shrek, for better or for worse, is the Snow White and the Seven Dwarves to DreamWorks animation. Yeah. And uh, certainly a better bet than Quibi. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, Katzenberg gets one win this year. You know, there's something. All right. From 2006. We're already, ooh, okay. And I'm going to butcher this, and I apologize, but Mauna Kea, Temple Under Siege. And I'm just going to read the paragraph for you right now because I know that neither of you are uh, familiar with this. Can I tell uh, you, Kyle? This guy, You're a little yeah. wrong. No fucking shit. Wrong. I could not tell you. I want to say this. I could not tell you what the fuck this is about other than the fact that it has to do with Hawaii. The only reason I know this is probably why Tom knows this too, which I think it just recently got put on the Criterion channel. No shit. Whoa. Okay. Right, Tom, am I wrong? I think that email went out that was like, oh, we have this now. I think so. Yeah. But I haven't Uh, I haven't seen it, but the title you saying that title, Kyle, I was kinda like 
Okay. I it it's clearly something. But please read the this paragraph. Is, this is not this is I'll tell you we still have four or three more after this. This is not this this is not the only type of documentary that caught me off guard. Um, this documentary about the dormant volcano on the big island of Hawaii examines the development versus ecological preservation battle between scientists who use the mountain summit as an astronomical observatory and Hawaiians who want the mountain preserved as a cultural landscape landscape sacred to the Hawaiian people. That's it. That's I, all they got. But, I mean, that sounds super interesting. I'm very glad that they picked this. Um, I think that you know, the registry has made a lot of effort to, like Tom says, be more inclusive, but also to not shy away from the faults of America. Now, when you say 2000, I'm assuming this right. is talking about a contemporary conflict on in Hawaii, not a not a retrospective, right? I believe so. Yeah. So, um, from what little. I mean, look, I'm not going to sit here and get uh, overly uh, political on our emergency episode that is already running much longer than I thought it would. Um, but. Guys, you can do your own homework. Um, the history of uh, the United States uh, treatment of Hawaii, uh, the Kingdom of Hawaii, that later became the Republic of Hawaii and the Territory of Hawaii. Um, the treatment of the United States uh, of the Hawaiian people has not is a is a very dark and um, terrible history. Um, and not something to be, I mean, you know, certainly happy we have it as a state, uh, and, and, and all that, but it's not a, 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 the history of how it happened is not something to necessarily be proud of as a nation. Um, and I think that that is something that has been neglected in the national conversation a lot. You know, I feel like we don't really talk about that, you know, and, uh, I'm glad that the registry is using this, you know, is inducting this film to have that conversation and to talk about the, the conflicts that are still so deeply embedded in this, in this state. Um, I'm certainly interested to watch it. It's on the Criterion channel. Um, but I understand why that gets put in and I'm, I'm very glad that that is going to be preserved as a part of the conversation so that we don't forget about that. Uh, Yeah. And it's uh, it's interesting to me that um, Kyle hinted that there's another documentary coming that um, most of the documentary stuff in this year is modernish. It's more yeah. uh, recent history, uh, recently made also. I mean, the earliest one, I think, if I'm remembering correctly, is Wattstacks, which is 73. Uh, so that's like the or the oldest one. And yeah, because still like Breads a color. Because yeah. that's like a color movie. Yeah. So it's not like fucking uh, some silent uh, industrial or whatever. Uh, yeah. It's not a short. Um, oh, it's in color. It, it, yeah. yeah, it's it's interesting that um, this year they're really leaning on documentaries. Uh, on, like the, there's a lot more movies past 1970 than I assumed there would be. But I'll, there's more of that class that's documentaries than I also would have expected. So um wonder what that's about. I don't yeah. hate it, but it's an interesting uh, little thing to notice about this class. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... Also, is this, is this not kind of the thing that Cameron Crowe was working on with uh, fucking Aloha? I, I I think that's the, the foundation that eventually gave us Aloha uh, somewhere in front of the line. 
Yeah. Listen, it's about space. It's about the sky. Yeah. It's about the sky. Yeah. These next two are the ones that I've been uh, looking forward to talking about the most. How many more um, do we have left? Three. We still have three. Three. Okay. But these two are the ones that I've been looking forward to the most. I'm I'm genuinely curious. Um, so I think I, mean, I know 20. I know one of the three, but I don't know the other. Yes. I know two of them. Interesting. Okay. So then, okay. So then, in that case, at number twenty three, from two thousand and eight. we we can we that's actually number twenty four on my list. But if you want, we can jump the gun. Uh, we can talk about the Dark Knight. What a Surprise. ballsy pick and i am so uh, freaking happy i'm so uh, listen i'm happy it's in um i'm not i'm not surprised because i felt like with the whole tenet thing this year they would put something of his in um i didn't ex- I, w- I wasn't gonna expect inception because that's eligible f- now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I, and so I figured, like, okay, they'll put, like, Dark Knight in because he's got a new movie out. He was fighting f- kind of fruitlessly and uh, recklessly, it, it turns out, to preserve the sanctity of the theater. Um, he's one of the biggest populist filmmakers working today. And The Dark Knight is kind of clearly one of the most influential movies of the last 15 years. Um, so I'm, you know, not surprised it's in. It feels like, uh, okay, yeah, he, this, he was he was in the minds of the film registry this year. I I I will say I'm surprised, not because I think it's undeserving, and not because uh, I think it is something that would never get in. I'm surprised it got in so soon. I would have thought that this was the kind of thing that would have taken a lot longer. Because yeah, this um, is its second year of eligibility, right? It's correct. It's, yeah, 2008. So it would have been. This is this eligibility. is twelve years after release, so yeah, second year of eligibility, third year. I don't know exactly how it would work, but um, yeah, so it's very soon, and they don't normally put things in that soon unless they are. I keep using the word, but undeniable. Like Star Wars was undeniable when it's inducted in its inaugural year. So I yeah. would have, I would have thought that this was coming, but I would have thought that this would have gone through more. It would have waited longer. I would have thought this would have been something that would have gotten inducted in you know, 2028 or 2030, I think. And I would have thought that it was the kind of thing that would have gotten inducted after a Tim Burton's Batman or a Sam Raimi Spider-Man. I, I would have thought that it would have gone through a bit more to get here because I would have thought being such a populist film and being such a, you know, in that, in that genre that it's in, I would have thought that it would have needed to go through a lot more hoops to get here. Uh, I will admit, this was the one I saw when I saw the headline and I saw The Dark Knight. I initially, I initially had to check and be like, is this some site that's like trying to will this into, you know, is this one of those like... Yeah. Is it the heart? Is, is this a Hard Times article? Or like, not even like a parody, but just one of these guys who's just like, well, it should be. You know, because I was like, I, there's, there's a little part of me initially was like, guys, they're not going to do that. But they did. And I give them props for that. And I think that the reason that it's in truthfully i think has nothing to do or not has little to do with batman and i think what it is is that the one thing that now in 2020 the one thing we have to reconcile with is that i think the most important thing about the dark knight is that it is the definitive film of the bush era 
I think that, you know, when you try and look at Tom and I dealt with this in college, actually, um, in college, we, we had, we worked on the same newspaper and we had to do, we were doing like a best of the decade, right? It just turned, it had just turned 2010 or 2011 or whatever it was. We were doing a best of the decade and we really struggled because it feels like at the end of previous decades, um, there were the populist films, but there were also the movies that you were like, oh, this rises above the crop. You know, when you look at the 90s and you look at people making their best of the 90s lists in the year 2000, the movies that show up at the top are things like Pulp Fiction, Unforgiven, Fargo, um, you know, American Beauty. Like there are there are intelligent artistic films that 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 rise above and you know even with the 80s people talking about raging bull do the right thing blue velvet there are movies that rise you know there are those kind of films the 2000s doesn't really have that um in fact i would argue that if you look at the best picture winners of the 2000s you kind of feel this shrug of like is this all there is um and I think we had a hard time, and Tom could probably speak this too. Like, look, when we were making our best of list, not that anybody cares at the CW Post Pioneer pick, but we were making our best of list. I tried very hard to not have the top picks be The Lord of the Rings and The Dark Knight because I kind of just felt like there has to be more. You know, there has to be more than that. There has to be something that really speaks to the time more. And I think what we found is that for better or worse, like the Dark Knight is more than just the movie that makes comic book movies gritty or the movie that, you know, XYZ. It is ultimately a movie wrestling with the ethics of the entirety of the Bush era. You have conversations about terrorism and how do you fight chaos, essentially. You know, the the the, the endlessly quotable some men just want to watch the world burn. You have Harvey Dent, who is uh, a figurehead who is mostly interested in theatrics. You know, that moment when he disassembles the gun in the courtroom is just George W. Bush standing in front of the Mission, Accompl- Mission Accomplished banner. Um, it it speaks so much to, you know, I'm very tired of these postmodern deconstructions of superhero movies and the superhero and how many times you get the, well, uh, did you realize superheroes are actually fascist? And what's great about The Dark Knight is how ambiguous it is in the idea of it gives you no solution. It tells you um, we all rely on dangerous men who ignore the law, be it Harvey Dent or Batman. We rely on them. We want them to do these things that they shouldn't be doing, but we also can't say we want them to. We're responding entirely out of fear um but also like the you know it's choosing between security and liberty it just it it's the definitive film of that of the post 9-11 era and there were so many movies that were about the iraq war there were so many movies that i mean i think like there's a case to be made of course if you're setting aside the dark knight there's a case to be made for something like the hurt locker being the definitive film of the iraq war period and the post 9-11 period and i i definitely think there's a case to be made for that um, but I think that the Dark Knight manages to do that and touch on those themes of that era while still being more timeless because it's not directly about that conflict. I'm I hate to filibuster, Tom. I hand it off to you. I apologize for going on. Uh, no, I mean it's 
all of that. I mean, it's what it did to the industry. It's not just the comic book thing or that comic books can be art, but like it literally changed what the Academy Awards do. Mm-hmm. Um, it, uh, it, I mean, it did like, like I said, it did all, it's just one of the most relentlessly entertaining yet thought. It's like the perfect mix of what you want these movies to be. It's it's up it's up there with Jaws. It's up there with A New Hope. It's up there with Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's it is up there with the Lord of the Rings movies. It's it's a movie that is incredibly populist. It sold you know, so many goddamn tickets. One of the most successful movies ever made. People love it, but it's deep. It's um just one of the best movies, really. I mean of its kind, I mean, in general, and now it's in the film registry, so you can say it's one of the best movies ever made, but it's one of the most rewatchable. And while you may say, well, you would think they'd get to 89 Batman or the first Sam Raimi Spider-Man before you got to this, um, I think there is a case to be made for all of the political stuff you said, all of the um, game-changing stuff it did with the industry and the Academy, but also that... 12 years later, you can watch it and not have those narrative flaws you find in those other comic book movies where you go, okay, well, there's not much going on in Batman except Jack Nicholson's dancing around a lot. And I mean, like the first Spider-Man where you go, okay, so Green Goblin succeeded in his mission 45 minutes into this thing and we have an hour and a half left. What is actually happening? Um it's just as tight. It's just tight as an air drum, and mm-hmm. um, even for people that like to clown on Nolan, it's kind of hard to not say that it's his, not his crowning achievement. And um, can I posit one yeah. theory though, Tom? I want to push back on one thing you said, and What's I don't that? think you're going to like it. You suggested that the reason this got in, because you know we can speculate on like, oh well, what prompted this to be part of the conversation now? You know, um, <laughs> with a lot of these. Uh, we talked about Crazy Rich Asians being, you know, bringing Joy Luck Club back to people's eyes. I think that that Kino pioneers of women's cinema bring some of these female-directed films to people's eyes, like Bread and things like that. I don't believe that Tenet is the reason this gets in. My theory for why this gets in and why this gets in now has less to do with Tenet and has more to do with the film from last year. I think that Joker... And I think that the conversation around Joker and I think that the fact that Heath Ledger winning Best Supporting Actor for playing the Joker in The Dark Knight, you know, it could be easy if you're if you're more of an academic person who wants to write off these comic book movies. It could be easy to look at that and say that has nothing to do with the comic books. That has nothing to do with that. It's just it's a career Oscar for his early passing or whatever. But the fact that 12 years later another performance is such a tour de force in this role that it wins an Oscar and becomes, I think the second only time that two actors have won the Oscar for the same role. I think it's Don Vito Corleone and, and the Joker. I think that it reignited yep. this conversation around whether it's, whether you walked out of Joker and went that sucked, that was not the dark Knight, or you walked out and went that was incredible. And that's thanks to the dark Knight. I think that the Joker and the critical and award success that the, that Joker had just proved that the movement that started with the dark Knight in terms of 
how much the dark i mean you know obviously you could cite the attempts at realism in x-men a lot but the dark knight really solidified the idea of like we're going to take this particular character batman joker and we're going to put them in the real world and we're going to use them to explore elements of the human psyche and elements of of human morality i think that because joker did that and because joker was so fresh in people's minds whether in a positive or negative sense it just it just serves to highlight how important, impactful, and long-lasting uh, what Christopher Nolan did with The Dark Knight and made it an un... It was, at that point, I keep saying the phrase undeniable because you have to. It made it an indelible, uh, inarguable part of our culture now. You know, well, I don't I think, think there's no argument there. Now. I think, well, that's inarguable. I think it's just the perfect storm of every element yeah. made up in time to put this movie into the registry. And it's funny, too, in a year where... Um, no comic book movies were really released. The the world shut down, and other than Harley Quinn, uh, a Batman related villain, uh, there were no comic book movies released this year. And it having that sort of um void in a culture that's been so uh, blockbuster culture, I should say, because yes, people, other movies are made. Um. <laughs> To have that void and to be able to kind of look back on what had come before without getting your tits in a twist about comic book movies, you could like look back and say, yeah, you know what? The Dark Knight fucking rules and we can get out of our own way and not have to like write a clickbait article about why it fucking sucks or why it ruined culture or whatever the hell and just be like, yeah, this is one of the most important movies released uh, in our lifetimes. And it's best to just get out of the way and just admit it and just say, yeah, no, it's, it's gotta be in. I will address this as we, as we wrap up mm -hmm. with these final two. Uh, but this just made me very happy, obviously very, uh, very well deserved, uh, very happy, uh, that it is in the list, but also, uh, for the reason you said, because it was so immediate after, um, it was eligible. It makes me feel confident in the film that I, I do want to campaign for next year's, uh, list which is as we've mentioned uh 2002 spider-man so look out well, they say uh, that hero could save us next year so anyway oh, speaking I'm of gonna um, be remembering the Spy sam Raimi spider-man movies since uh that's all that's being recasted these days fucking defoe and thomas hayden church are in negotiations to return god damn it that's what i've heard i want to be more I confident in this film than I am, that, like, we can't... that like did they? Was there like a like an outright? Was there like a confident source, a reliable source on that? Because I did see one that was circulating. I'm like, I've never seen this before. It's just like a. It's they are in negotiations. So take that for whatever, whatever it means. Nothing's been confirmed yet. Just like somebody was like, oh my god, we saw Tobey Maguire getting a, a costume fitting nearby where they're shooting Spider Man. That means he must be in Spider Man. It's like okay, well we'll we'll know when they tell us. Um, speaking of, um, it's funny. Mike, yeah, that there's a certain film that you mentioned because uh, number twenty four from two thousand and eight, it is the Hurt Locker. No shit. Yeah, that's one of them. Wow. Wow. Okay. Look um, at you. Well, like I don't want to sound like I was dismissing the Hurt Locker uh, when I was talking about the Dark Knight. Um, I mean, I. It's tough. I have not seen The Hurt Locker in a number of years. And I remember that it was part of a very... Because it was a 2008 release, but it wins the Academy Award for Films of 2009, I think, because of the way it was released. 
Um, yeah. Okay, I need a, I I my brain needs a second to process this one. Um, wow. Not in like a not in like a I'm shocked way, but like I knew the Dark Knight was coming. So when we brought that up, I could be like, well, because this represents this, and and that was. I mean, it has to be in, right? It it, yeah. it has to be in. It is the is the first and only film for which a female director has won best director and best picture. Um, so for that reason alone, if nothing else, it has to be in. Um, I know that there has been backlash for the movie since, um, particularly um, some veterans have said that it is unrealistic. Um, I think at the end of the day, it's probably the best film to attempt to tackle the Iraq war. Um, I don't, I still don't feel like it's necessarily the definitive Iraq war film. I don't know if we'll, if when we'll get that. Um, so perhaps in some ways it's more like the deer hunter was to Vietnam, but look, Catherine Bigelow, um, her, post-Oscar career is complicated despite only being two films thus far uh, but her post-Oscar career is complicated her pre-Oscar career is fascinating but there's no arguing that Catherine Bigelow is a very talented filmmaker and I think that the story of the Hurt Locker the film uh, the journey that film had Aside from being female directed, which is already, you know, winning the Oscars an accomplishment, the fact that it was this scrappy little film that, you know, nobody saw, maybe a few people saw. I, I had a friend in high school who uh, went to see it in theaters and was telling me, you got to see it. It's this tiny indie movie that I think is playing twice a day. And he was not a big movie buff, so I, I was fascinated he found it. But I remember that it was just this slow build and the fact that it was, I mean... Look, Tom and I were in what our second year of film school when that won the Oscar, right? That was our sophomore year. Well, wouldn't that have been? Yeah, actually, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was up against Avatar, which yeah, was right. the dominant film, and also, of course, uh, directed by uh, her ex-husband. But I remember that it was like that year was Precious and Inglorious Bastards and uh, Up in the Air and Avatar and Up and District Nine. Um, and to a lesser extent, an education and a serious man, those were never really like talked about it. Oh, and the blind side, none of those were talked about for best picture, but you had heavy hitters with inglorious bastards and avatar and, um, and, uh, uh, up in the air. These were all, uh, and up was also nominated, but these were all things that people were like, Oh, is it going to go to up in the air or is it going to go to avatar? And avatar ends up winning the golden globe. Um, and is it going to go to, you know, and it was not the Hurt Locker winning Best Picture was not the foregone conclusion that a lot of Oscar wins of that time were. When Slumdog Millionaire won Best Picture, it was a small, scrappy indie film when it started too. But it by that point, it had had so much buzz around it that we knew Slumdog Millionaire was winning Best Picture by the time those Oscars happened. Um. Crash was a scrappy indie film, but by the time the Oscars came around, a lot of people thought it was going to win. Hurt Locker winning was not something that people thought was going to happen. 2009, and maybe I'm off here, but uh, Tom can back up. I think 2009 felt more like this past Oscar year where we were like, is it going to be 1917? Is it going to be Parasite? Could it be Joker? Like, we truly didn't know. 
Um, and much like Parasite winning, even though I think, you know, Parasite's a different animal entirely, um, you know, Hurt Locker winning was a revolutionary moment. Um, and I can't speak to, you know, this too much, but, you know, future guest of the show, uh, Carrie Ferrante, who was a friend of ours in college, I, like, you know, I know for her, like, being in film school and seeing a woman win Best Director was a big deal, and it felt like things were changing, and it felt like a big moment. So, I totally get it. I, I even if it is maybe not the most reflective of the Iraq War, some people would want it to be. I totally get it. I totally get its inclusion, uh, and and uh, I I should revisit it. Tom, yeah, um, I you know like it more than some people. I don't think it's the greatest movie in the world. I don't think it's her best movie or anything like that uh but again you know you talk about impact you talk about what it did and how it affected things um it's kind of hard to deny it and uh i'm i'm you know i'm i'm glad it's in i think it's a really interesting movie i think it's a little more interesting than people want to give it credit for i think um people that get hung up about its you know quote unquote uh realism are uh, essentially missing the forest for the trees. And um, I don't know. I, I'm, you know, I genuinely surprised we got um, this many movies uh, past 2005 because that was the most recent movie beforehand because of Brokeback Mountain. It uh, seems like we're going to have three now or later uh, more recent than Brokeback. And uh, it's very interesting that uh, they added... Uh, you know, like Dark Knight was pretty much an obvious if you're going to go after Brokeback Mountain. And uh, I don't think Hurt Locker is obvious, but it's more than worthy yeah. because of how not obvious it is. Um, and I would so, say, yeah. yeah, I would say it's, and maybe I'm wrong here, but I would say at least of the 2000s best picture winners, I think it's on the, if you're ranking them, it's on the higher side of those for sure. Oh, it's definitely on the higher side. I, I mean, if, uh, unless I'm like missing something, it's probably like what second or third after return of the King and million dollar baby one. Right. So like, I mean, yeah, maybe I think your, your two thousands Oscars are, and I may cut this, but two thousand Oscars are, are a beautiful mind, Chicago, return of the King, million dollar baby, um uh 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 crash departed no country for old men slumdog millionaire and hurt locker yeah so i i yeah i put it like three or third or fourth in that 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 pile there so i mean um it's kind of which is kind of damning it with faint page because like right after it it's like just a complete nosedive into (laughs) mediocrity of oscar nonsense but um yeah, I think it's pretty fucking solid and it's kind of the promise of that was, that was really never kept with Jeremy Renner. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like we got yeah. such a great flash of like what this guy could be that we kind of got with the town. I mean, not kind of like we really got with yeah. the town, but he kind of never really delivered on again since um, it was a great uh, kind of reintroduction for Anthony Mackie because I mean before that it was really just him as uh, Papa Doc in Eight Mile, and we we got to see like oh this guy's like a real actor and he's gonna be a guy around for a while and um for whatever um 
structural or screenwriting flaws that could be thrown at the movie, which I do think there are criticisms you could lay at it. Um, there are some truly just next level set pieces that only Catherine Bigelow could have delivered. And, uh, I mean, if, if, even if the movie fucking sucked, the fact that she won best director and it won best picture and it was, you know, by a woman yeah. and that's more, honestly, more than enough because, uh, I'm sure there's been other firsts that have been inducted into shit that are just like, okay, really this, this it's cats and Bigelow. Good job, cat. Yeah. Yeah. So now there's, there's one left, right? Yeah, this is just the, and this, this is, is the, the new baby. This is the one you were teasing out and like the, because you said yes. there was something else. I think you hinted it was a documentary. Yeah. There's something. So this yes. sounds like it's going to be weird. You you made it sound like it's going to be a weird one, and I'm very curious what the hell that means. I, gentlemen, I'd like to introduce you to the new baby of the National Film Registry from 2010. So yeah, so that's that's like from the first. That's that's immediate eligibility. First, first year, first round eligibility. That's the Mariana Rivera of this year. Hang on, hang first. on, Kyle. Before you say anything else, just knowing it's a documentary from 2010, uh-huh. can I try and take a guess? Sure, because I'm just, and I'm 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 not entirely sure. But documentary from 2010. Is it? You said weird 2010. Is it, I'm going to name three, and I want you to tell me if any of these are it. Okay? Go ahead. Go ahead. Exit Through the Gift Shop. No. Cave of Forgotten Dreams. No. Okay. I think I know what this is, and I'm maybe I'm going to look like an asshole. Was this uh, also the subject of a recent uh, narrative film? I have no idea. Maybe, probably. <laughs> Tom, do you know what I'm thinking? Just, no, I'm just laughing at you asking a question and Kyle just going, I don't know. Well, no. <laughs> yeah. Is this the basis for Robert Zemeckis' Welcome to Marwin? Is it Marwin Call? It is not, no. What the hell is this? Because I'm like racking my brain for unusual documentaries from 2010. It's Freedom Riders. It's So let me tell you what, what, let me tell you what Freedom Riders is about. During 1961, it is. During 1961, more than 400 people from across the nation, black and white, women and men, old and young, challenged state-sanctioned segregation on buses and in bus terminals in the Deep South, segregation that continued after the Supreme Court had ruled the practice to be in violation of interstate commerce laws. Some 50 years later, Freedom Riders, a two-hour PBS American Experience documentary made by Stanley Nelson, charted their course in considerable depth as they faced savage retaliatory attacks and forced a reluctant federal government to back their cause. The riveting story is told without narration using archival film and stills and most engagingly through testimonies of the Freedom Riders themselves, journalists who followed their trail, federal, state, and local officials, white Southerners and chroniclers of the movement, including Raymond Arsenault, whose book inspired the documentary. The film takes viewers through many complex twists and turns of the journey with extraordinary clarity and emotional force. 
the courage and conviction of the freedom riders, ordinarily Americans willing to risk bodily harm and death to combat injustice nonviolently, will inspire later generations who watch Nelson's eloquent film. Nearly 50 full interviews conducted for the film are now available in the American Archive of Public Broadcasting. Okay. 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 I want to address this right up off the top. For anyone who is uh, confused as to why we might be thrown by this, um, so uh, that this my confusion has nothing to do with the subject matter, which is very important uh, and and very worthy. And the fact that it uses all archival footage uh, is wonderful and and again fully supported. And I understand the idea of oh somebody compiled all this archival footage into this documentary and we want to preserve all this archival footage in this documentary. We want to preserve this important moment in time. I completely get all that, but now I totally know what Kyle means. It's a it's a PBS American Experience TV film. Yeah. So it's we a finally. It, Waltzed right into the age-old debate: Is it TV or is it film? It's so it's so so so. Okay, Did this, this is like break like the barrier for the future entrance, right? Like basically? this is this is breaking my brain. But so I hear here. Okay, here's my question. So I'm looking this up now. Okay, I'm looking it up, and it played at a couple of film festivals, right? Okay, yes. So. So it had some theatrical presence um, prior to its airing on on PBS. So not the weirdest thing sorry. when it comes to documentaries and stuff like that. No. I mean, um. So what I'm does so I'm gonna say like I I don't think you could necessarily. What's up? Because frankly, I'm mostly just like curious now where it's like, okay, like where is, I mostly wonder because like when we started this, one of the things I have to remind myself, and if, if we haven't mentioned this before, I'd be surprised, but things like, you know, the music video for Michael Jackson's Thriller are in the film mm-hmm. registry. Yeah. And I wonder if this is sort of a representation of that where like, hey, moving forward, PBS stuff or like public broadcasting stuff like stuff that is publicly you know made for viewers like you are going to get a little bit more recognition moving forward in an attempt to sort of remind people and recognize why it's not only important to preserve the american films but also the publicly funded stuff that continues to struggle to just barely get by in an age that now continues to transition farther and farther away from movie theaters and uh, cable. I think it's interesting that's where you went on this, Kyle, because the question that it raises for me is that you know, the National Film Registry as far as I know is not inducting um, you know, they're not inducting episodes of Playhouse 90, you know, and this does not set a precedent to induct the pilot of The Sopranos or anything like that, but it does raise a question to me. I figured in my mind, like, oh, you know, uh, 30 for 30s are off limits, things like that. But this raises the question, if Freedom Riders is eligible because it played at festivals on a screen, does this then set the precedent for the inevitable eligibility of something like O.J. Made in America? Which, um, which oh, aired... Oh, yeah, it's like an eight-hour 
yeah, like an eight hour. Well, it was full. Yeah, it qualified for uh, it it qualified for the Academy Awards because it had a theatrical run and it was edited together as a feature film. Um, you know, though, hang on, I'm not sure if this is a precedent because I believe. No, I'm I'm wrong. Uh I so so um so Hoop Dreams was also partly funded by the National Endowments of the Arts and PBS and I believe the original intention for Hoop Dreams was for it to play on public television as a as a PBS documentary, but I believe Hoop Dreams did get in a full-on theatrical run. So um yeah, I believe that Hoop Dreams was was kind of like that, but I think that got a longer run. I don't know. This is so uh, this is so niche for our listeners, but hey, listen, they stuck it out for much longer than I thought this episode would go. Would go anyway. Um, that's interesting. That's super interesting. I have not seen Freedom Riders, um, but now I'm gonna have to check it out. That that that's fascinating. This is this is this is very compelling to me now. I'm very interested. Tom, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm interested to watch it, and uh, it's definitely interesting. Like I said, uh, all these documentaries from like the latter half of the century, and uh, rounding it out with one that uh, is kind of blurring the lines of uh, what is necessarily eligible. Yeah. Not as big a break as you would, as some people might say, but um. It's definitely, definitely opening the door a little wider than we thought those hinges could handle. And that's that's it, right? That's all 25? Uh, I guess the only other thing to say for anybody is uh, if you're wondering, oh, golly, when are they going to talk about The Dark Knight? Like, when's that episode coming out? Please bear in mind that this is 2020 and we're currently covering the film selected for 1989. What that means for anybody interested is that... Uh, these would be uh we're in season one now this would be season 32 um so if if you want us to get to season 32 eventually um you can help us out with that uh by uh rating and reviewing the show uh on itunes or spotify wherever you get the podcast it's super helpful it helps people find us it really means a lot the reviews are a big deal so if you can write a review that'd be great um and tell your friends, tell people about the show, retweet it, do what you can. Um, we've been seeing a growing audience lately, and that, that means a lot. We love that people are checking us out. Um, if you have people you want on the show, we're in the process of starting to plan season two now. So you can let us know. You can email us uh, at, it's Kyle, our email is you're missing out podcast at gmail.com, right? That is correct. You're missing out podcast at gmail.com. Email us if you have a guest. If you just want to, Tell us you like the show. If you want to talk to us, reach out to us there, or you can reach out to us on Twitter, uh, respond to the tweets or anything like that. We uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, but yeah, rate and review the show, spread the word, and and hopefully we'll be able to keep this going and eventually get to the point where we can do a full Shrek episode years from now. The Shrek episode, if you the will. The Shrek episode. We're so close. It, just help us out. Rate, review. Anybody have any closing thoughts? A lot of movies I'm excited to get to at some yes. point. That's really about it. It, this is awesome. a long one. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. 
Um, tune in in a couple days, uh, two days, one day, however long it takes me to cut this together. Uh, Jordan Beck joining us to talk about Snow White and the Seven Dwarves. We are working our way through our first season. Um, I'm happy to see that there are two picks that we make for the registry one for tom one for me that are now rendered inaccurate because they are now in the registry we'll see what we're going to do about that but uh thank you guys for checking this out thank you guys for listening thank you guys for supporting us uh hope you check out these films hope you check out the show spread the word thank you so much